Hi, Royals fans. This is J.J. Piccolo. The University of Kansas Health System is the official health care provider of the Kansas City Royals. And gone! Trust the same experts who make the right call for the Royals and go to kansashealthsystem.com slash royals. First of all, for the news, Juwan Taylor, the former Jaguars, standout tackle agrees to terms on a four-year $80 million deal, $60 million guaranteed. That's interesting. Obviously, a big-time, really good right tackle to replace Andrew Wiley. You've been blindsided. It's a Monday edition of the Night Shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB. Unlike our typical time slot, of Wednesdays from 7 to 10, but not to worry, due to some NCAA tournament scheduling conflicts, we will not be on air Wednesday night, so we're just getting bumped to Monday night, and it's the perfect day, really, to have a show on the fly, and not that I haven't been prepared for this, we've got guests lined up, we got four of them for you tonight, we'll have Patrick Fitzgerald joining us here in about 30 minutes, we'll talk some Big 12 teams and the NCAA tournament. Joel Penfield will be joining us from 8 to 8.30, and that's Joel Penfield of KC Sports Network. We will talk everything from Selection Sunday. Then at 8.30, we'll be joined by Lance Twidwell of the Spoken Podcast to get his thoughts on the Chiefs' new left tackle. It's no longer going to be Orlando Brown Jr., there is a new sheriff in town in Jawan Taylor, so we'll have plenty of Chiefs talk coming up at 8.30. Then at 9.30, we got to get Max Reaper's thoughts on the Kansas City Royals 14-2 and in Cactus League play. And last night, two Royals got in for Team USA in the WBC Classic in a 11-5 to loss to Mexico, but not to worry for Team U.S. While we're on the air... They will be playing Canada tonight, first pitch at 9 p.m., so we will be able to get Max's thoughts on what's been going on there and maybe his projections for the WBC Classic and the 26-man roster for the Kansas City Royals. But to kick off our show tonight, man, it was a wild day in the NFL. And don't worry, we will have about an hour straight of NCAA tournament talk, but today was also a very big day in the world of the NFL. There were a lot of big-name signings, and this is only the first day. It's only the first domino to fall. The Chiefs get their new left tackle and Jawan Taylor, who was the right tackle for the Jacksonville Jaguars. So, once again, the Chiefs solved their left tackle hole, their vacancy, with the right tackle who's going to make the adjustment moving from there to left tackle. Though, in the case of Taylor, a little bit different than when the Chiefs acquired Orlando Brown Jr., from the Baltimore Ravens, because at that point, at least Orlando Brown Jr. had a full season, or at least half a season, close to a full season, at left tackle due to a Ronnie Staley injury in Baltimore. So Orlando Brown Jr. moved over to left tackle, wanted left tackle money, and he's not going to get it in Kansas City. He's going to have to get it elsewhere. Because Baltimore wasn't going to pay him, and Kansas City wasn't going to pay him. But the Chiefs go out and get Jawan Taylor, who was the right tackle of the Jacksonville Jaguars. Tremaine Edmonds, also the great linebacker from the Buffalo Bills, he signed a four-year, $72 million deal with the Chicago Bears. Jesse Bates, the safety of the Cincinnati Bengals, is on his way to the NFC South as he joins the Atlanta Falcons on a four-year, $64.02 million contract. The Pittsburgh Steelers add to their secondary by adding all-pro cornerback Patrick Peterson in the later stages of his career, but still provided a lot of value to the Minnesota Vikings last year. The Las Vegas Raiders have their replacement, 
to Derek Carr. They go get 49ers quarterback or former 49ers quarterback Jimmy Garoppolo on a three-year, $72.75 million deal. We're going to have a lot of thoughts on that signing by the Las Vegas Raiders. The Broncos also were pretty active in adding to their offensive line. The big name in that one, they go out and get Mike McGlinchey, the right tackle from the 49ers. They signed him to a mega deal. So Sean Payton really making a point early on that when he's going to the front office, he wants to start with rebuilding that offensive line. So maybe that would mean the end of a couple of guys up front. Don't know what they'll do with maybe Dalton Reisner, the former Kansas State Wildcat. Maybe they'll let him walk, but it's clear right now uh, the Broncos want to go out and get some protection for a guy like Russell Wilson because, as we saw last year, Russell Wilson did not have a good year one in Denver, but one of the biggest problems for Denver and Russell Wilson was pass protection at times. And when you have a smaller quarterback, they're not going to be able to be running for their life all the time. Russell Wilson needs some time. He needs pass protection. I think they got on the right side with Mike McGlinchey. So the NFL went pretty crazy. Cameron Sutton signed with the Detroit Lions, a former Pittsburgh Steeler there. But I wanted to save a little bit of the Juwan Taylor talk for 8.30 because we'll have Lance Twidwell joining us at that point from the Spoken Podcast. And he was pretty expressive on Twitter about his thoughts for Juwan Taylor. He was a guy that did want Orlando Brown Jr. to maybe get an offer there, but he also is hopeful, and he wants it to work out. I mean, who doesn't want it to work out if you are in Kansas City? You don't want them to let a guy like Orlando Brown Jr. walk, and then it can be be a complete disaster on the left side of your line because also right tackle is vacant right now. Andrew Wiley sent a three-year, $24 million deal with the Washington Commanders. But like I said, we will have plenty of talk on the Kansas City Chiefs later on in the show. The big headline to me with today and the AFC West has to be Jimmy Garoppolo because the Las Vegas Raiders have been a team now for the last, oh, let's go five to six years, have tried to build their roster, and like the rest of the AFC West teams, build their roster around beating the Chiefs. They need to find ways to beat the Chiefs. Last year, they got a lot of praise. They went out and got Derek, or they got Devontae Adams to give Derek Carr a number one weapon. You thought with Hunter Renfro in the year that he had in 2021, he'd be a great number two option for Derek Carr. You thought Darren Waller could be that number one tight end playing at least 15 of the 17 games. But injuries happened. The defense was terrible. And when it was all said and done, Josh McDaniels may have just not been the greatest hire. But quarterback problems were still apparent last season in Vegas. It was not as bad as Denver's quarterback problems with Russell Wilson, but it was very clear they had the third-best quarterback in the division. They were miles and miles and miles behind Patrick Mahomes and Justin Herbert. And you thought going into the offseason, if you're moving on from Derek Carr— you have to have an upgrade in mind. There has to be somebody out there that you think either we're building for the future or we're going to go break bank and go get a guy like Lamar Jackson. I know with Lamar Jackson not signing with Baltimore, you kind of feel like, man, they're going to have to go after somebody here. right? If you're going to let Derek Carr walk, the guy who's been with you for the last decade, there has to be a plan in place. And I think to many people out there, once... Lamar Jackson wasn't really an option. Either they didn't want to give enough draft picks to Lamar Jackson or they didn't want to pony up and pay a guy like Lamar Jackson. They were going to go through the draft because it's a very quarterback-heavy draft. 
You can go with, you know, Bryce Young, C.J. Stroud near the top. Maybe a guy like Will Levis goes top five. Anthony Richardson can fall a couple spots. He's been an athletic freak in the combine, and he's probably built to be one of the stronger-armed quarterbacks of this class. I mean, that's the one thing with Anthony Richardson. I saw a lot of mocks with him going to the Las Vegas Raiders, and that would have been a dream scenario. And maybe that's not ruling out they'll still go quarterback in the first round, but you gave Jimmy G a three-year deal. And Jimmy Garoppolo, yes, can win games. That is a fact. We can't dispute that fact. Jimmy Garoppolo can win games. Now, how do you define winning an NFL game? Are you just the quarterback when your team wins, or do you win that game for your team? There's a difference. There are guys that were very average, mediocre quarterbacks that won a lot of games because either they had a number one defense, they had a great coach, they had skill weapons all around, and they were a good quarterback that looked great. Then there's other quarterbacks that leveraged their team to victory. There were other quarterbacks in the league that made a name for themselves by doing extraordinary things. Jimmy Garoppolo is not an extraordinary quarterback. And Jimmy Garoppolo, might I add, is not an upgrade over Derek Carr. He's not. He's not going to be as reckless with the ball as Derek Carr was. But I think when you look at the AFC West, the Raiders needed a guy to take this team to the next level, even if it meant you had to wait two or three years. Jimmy Garoppolo does not move the needle for the Las Vegas Raiders. There is no way in hell Jimmy Garoppolo makes this team in this current division a wild card team. There's not. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm being bold with this prediction. I'm jinxing everybody else in the AFC West. And Jimmy Garoppolo shuts me up and they go and win 10 games. But I will tell you that Jimmy Garoppolo's success in San Francisco was much more dependent on who was around him as opposed to him doing a lot of the work. If you don't believe me, just look at what the 49ers did this last season. They had, what, four different quarterbacks play? You had Jimmy G. You had Trey Lance. You had Brock Purdy. You had Josh Johnson. And we were sitting here in the studio during the playoffs calling the 49ers the most dangerous team in the NFC. And if it wasn't for an injury to Brock Purdy against the Eagles, who knows? Maybe the 49ers win that game and it's Chiefs and 49ers round two in the Super Bowl. But there's a reason to that math. That Brock Purdy comes in and goes undefeated until the NFC Championship game. You know Brock Purdy, Mr. Irrelevant, the last pick in the draft. A guy who had some pretty pathetic throws at Iowa State. Still a good quarterback, but he was mocked during his senior year. And I don't think anybody, when he was the last pick in the draft, thought that he would be starting games for the 49ers in 2022. Hell, in 2023 in the postseason. But Jimmy Garoppolo got a lot of those wins had a high winning percentage because he had Shanahan on the sideline. He had good weapons. You have George Kittle, Debo Samuel, and then, oh, might I add, they brought in the guy for Christian McCaffrey later on. Now, I know Jimmy G was banged up for, you know, the tail end of the year, and I think it was Brock Purdy taking over in, what was it, week 13, week 14, something like that, maybe earlier than that, maybe week 10, week 11. But there were weapons, and in the Super Bowl run, they had the number one defense in the NFL. They were a good team. They were a good collection of players. And I'm not sure why the Las Vegas Raiders looked at Jimmy Garoppolo and said, that's our answer. 
because he's not an upgrade over Derek Carr. He's just not. And even though they've got offensive weapons, Devontae Adams is arguably the best receiver in the NFL. Hunter Renfro is a good slot receiver. He's one of the better route-running slot receivers in the NFL. Darren Waller, when healthy, is a top-five tight end. But defensively, they're not good. And when you're not good defensively, you have to rely on quarterbacks to win shootouts for you. And Jimmy Garoppolo is not going to win many shootouts in the AFC. I, I just can't really make too much sense of a signing like Jimmy Garoppolo to a three-year deal. I mean, it's not breaking bank. And maybe the Raiders still want to find a way to compete for a wild card. But you would be completely remiss. You would be outside your flipping mind if you believe Jimmy Garoppolo in this current AFC is going to be able to go toe-to-toe with the greatest. Mahomes, Burrow, Allen, if Lamar stays in Baltimore. He's not beating any of those quarterbacks. Justin Herbert, Trevor Lawrence is now surging in the AFC. I don't get it. Dylan, can you make much sense of the Raiders making their next quarterback Jimmy Garoppolo? No, not at all. I was actually looking at their per-game stats compared through football reference for their entire career. I don't know if you knew this. They were actually drafted in the same draft. So they're the exact same football age, basically, as far as years mm-hmm. played. And Derek Carr's completions and attempts, I mean, he's got 22.5 completions to 34.9 attempts. Jimmy G's is 15.8 to 23.3 average per game over his career. Now, I wish I could take away all the seasons that he wasn't playing because he was sitting behind Tom Brady, and I hope they did that themselves, but I'm not too hopeful. But I don't even have to look at those to know that that's probably not far off, I'd say. You probably can get maybe a couple more points up on those if you played the full season, but we know they don't rely on him to do anything in San Francisco, and that's the reason why they were in those games and you would actually pick them. It wasn't because of the quarterback. It was because of the team around him, and the Raiders don't even have not even close to that team around him now. So it kind of just felt like they moved backwards. I think they moved either backwards or they just moved laterally. And I still am pretty high on Derek Carr. I think Derek Carr got a lot of heat because he dealt with a lot of organizational dysfunction for his entire career. I mean, going back to 2014, Derek Carr has turned in two winning seasons. He was 12-3 and in the year. He was actually in the running for the MVP. He was all pro, finished third in MVP voting. Remember, had that gruesome leg injury? What was he broke his ankle? It was just disgusting, and then they had to start Matt McGloin in the postseason game against Houston. Then he goes 10-7 and two years ago, right when it was the Brandon Staley debacle at the end of the game, and those teams could have tied and eliminated Pittsburgh, and they both could have been in the playoffs, but Brandon Staley's aggressiveness cost him. And the, the Raiders kicked the game-winning field goal, went on to lose to Cincinnati in the wild card round. So two winning seasons in all that dysfunction. And though Derek Carr was not MVP level all the time, he wasn't making multiple Pro Bowls, let's just look at some of the numbers here on some really bad Raiders teams. That's the difference here. And also the difference is, look where Jimmy Garoppolo's been in his entire career. He came from New England. Bill Belichick. Robert Kraft, Tom Brady, the dynasty, that's not organizational dysfunction. That's about as sturdy as you can get in the NFL. And though he wasn't playing, he still was learning how organizations should be run. Then he goes to San Francisco. You could argue they're one of the most well-run NFC teams. They've got talent. Guys are happy. They want to go play there. 
great defense, great coach, great coaching staff. All you got to do is not make mistakes. It's what made Alex Smith be a very coveted trade piece when the Chiefs went out and got him. You just need to do enough, and you'll win a lot of games, you'll be a winning quarterback. So those are the two organizations that Jimmy Garoppolo's been in. As for Derek Carr, he spent his entire career in dysfunction. In a year in which the Raiders went 7-9 and in 2015, Derek Carr threw for nearly 4,000 yards. His completion percentage was lower, 61.1, but he threw for 32 touchdowns, only 13 picks. He made the Pro Bowl that year. Then in his MVP year, which is always kind of written off because he got hurt at the tail end, he was 12-3, and 64% completion percentage, 28 touchdowns, 6 picks, nearly 4,000 yards again. Okay, let's go down to some really bad Raiders teams. 2018, the Raiders were 4-12, and and he made all those 16 starts. He threw for over 4,000 yards, 19 touchdowns, 10 picks. I just think you would take that with all the dysfunction. He didn't have weapons all the time. And this may be one of the few times you've heard me come on the air and protect a guy like Derek Carr. I just can't see the answer being Jimmy Garoppolo. Jimmy Garoppolo has had one season in his career where he started for the entire year. And it was the Super Bowl run for San Francisco when they were 13-3. and Since then, Jimmy Garoppolo has not won double-digit games in his entire career. He started two games for New England in 2016. He started five games for the 49ers in 2017 won all of them. He was 1-2 in 2018. After the Super Bowl year, remember he got banged up, was 3-3. Three and three. In 2021, Jimmy G was 9-6. and six. And this year he was 7-3 and three before he got hurt. So if the goal to get to the wild card game is 10 wins, right? You probably need to get 10 wins in the AFC to get to the wild card game. Jimmy G has done that one time. And it was when they won the Super Bowl. And might I add, it was one of the best defensive teams we had seen since the 2002 Baltimore Ravens. The 2000 Baltimore Ravens. I'm blanking on what year it was. That's what it took for Jimmy G to win 10 games. Guess what? The Raiders don't have that. The Raiders don't have a top-five defense. They've got dudes. Love Max Crosby. Love the, the collection of guys they have offensively. Offensive line's not there. No, Josh Jacobs, a stud. They franchise-tagged him. There's pieces. But when you have pieces, you have to find your franchise quarterback. They did not find it in Jimmy Garoppolo. Now, they could shut me up here. They could use their first-round pick. Maybe Anthony Richardson falls into their lap. But I'm still questioning it because you spent so much money to bring in Jimmy G. And they didn't break bank. We mentioned that earlier. They did not break bank to bring a guy like Jimmy Garoppolo. But you're not going and drafting a quarterback in the first round for him to sit for two or three years. When the Chiefs drafted Patrick Mahomes, it was very clear and evident. Alex Smith was on his way out after that. This would be more so of a scenario like Aaron Rodgers in Green Bay. Not talent-wise, but if they were to draft a quarterback in the first round, they're not getting in the game. Now, maybe the, the Las Vegas Raiders look at it and say, Jimmy G is not durable. But at the same time, it still feels like that's a questionable move. You signed a guy to a three-year deal who's not durable, who's won 10 games or more one time in his career? I don't get it. I really, really don't get it. And this is kind of the organizational 
dysfunction we get back to over and over and over again. The Raiders had a prime opportunity last year to take that leap, to see that next step. They had made the postseason. They were 10-7. and They felt like the one thing they were missing was a number one weapon. And they went out, and they got Devontae Adams, and it was not as shocking as the NFL made it seem because he was college teammates with Derek Carr. The sole reason Devontae Adams wanted to come to Las Vegas was because he could go back to his college quarterback. There was a connection there. And it's also Las Vegas. And you felt like they were on the rise. And he turned in a hell of a year with Derek Carr. Now how do you think Devontae Adams feels? He lost his quarterback. The guy who recruited him there. And you replaced him with a guy who's not going to put up the big numbers. That's the thing. Jimmy Garoppolo can win. But he's not going to keep top targets happy. Dylan, I know I'm putting you on the spot here. Tell me in Jimmy G's nine-year career. I listed up a couple of 4,000-plus passing yard seasons. I want you to tell me how many times Jimmy Garoppolo has thrown for over 4,000 yards. Zero. Yes, he has never thrown for more than 4,000 yards in his career. Three, nine, seven, eight in 2019, which was his best season. Mm-hmm. I did cheat. I am on the Pro Football Reference page already, as I said. <laughs> that's what I already was doing the Derek Carr comparison, but... Yeah, that's shocking. And that is like, that's easy now. It'd be one thing if you were saying that in the 90s. Like, 4,000 yards was 5,000 in the 90s, early 2000s. Now that's kind of where you have to be or they're trying to replace you. Or you're like a Lamar Jackson or hopefully Anthony Richardson one day, like that type of player that is rushing for at least 1,000 to combat with the fact that you're not, you know what I'm saying? There's not as much passing yards. So that is very shocking, and I'd love to see Derek Carr. I know Derek Carr's gotten over 4,000. He's led the league in passing before. He's had the numbers before. And Jimmy G, not over 4,000 yards. His highest passing touchdown total, 27. I think Devontae Adams had 14 this year. I think he had 14 receiving touchdowns this year in, in Vegas. So 2019 was Jimmy G's best season, basically. Yes, he had 27 and 13. You could also argue in 2021 he was pretty good in 15 games with 20 touchdowns and 12 picks. Yeah, but there's like, stability. That looks like a that looks like a 2000. That looks like you know early Tom Brady. Yeah, like that looks like back when they were running the football almost 70 percent of the time. It it just it does and not. They, ma- but that's what they do. They literally do that. They actually do run the football mm-hmm. probably close to 65 to 70 percent of the time in San Francisco because of. The limitations. The limitations. And that, like, that's what bad organizations remain bad because of the owners being bad or mm-hmm. making bad decisions. And Mark Davis, we know, has made a lot of bad decisions, including it looks like this one, because it doesn't take someone that's very, I'm not the most knowledgeable football person on the planet. And I can even see that that team runs off of the team, not the quarterback, in, uh, which is extremely rare in the NFL today. And you went and, what was it, basically three years, ten, 10 a year is what it kind of boils yeah. down to, which I guess isn't bad. That's kind of like a elite backup maybe. Yeah, I think but, that, it's again, yeah. it's not— It's just not a good move. It's not a contract where you're going, that's going to handicap us, it's going to handi- hand, or handcuff us for the next three years. Like, the Raiders can still make moves. Like, how much did they sign Stidham for today? 
five mil a year. It was, it was a two year, ten million dollar deal. Was there anything wrong with that? Mm-hmm. The way you talked about him this off, like the, the way they yeah. were speaking about him when they benched Carr, it clearly was a smokescreen. That they I were guess. gonna, they were giving yeah. him chances because they felt like he could be a starting quarterback next year. The problem is they left Derek, they let Derek Carr walk, and I think everybody after they couldn't go get Lamar Jackson thought, all right, it's rebuild time in Vegas. But maybe they're looking at it and going, we need to keep our stars happy. Josh Jacobs isn't going to stay around if he's not getting his yards. Devontae Adams is going to want to stay around if he's catching passes from a lesser quarterback. Yeah, and then they go get Jimmy Garoppolo. I, I cannot really wrap my mind around it. Maybe there's a silver lining there. You look at the winning percentage and go, hey, we're not far off from the 49ers, but yes, you are. Yes, you are. Josh McDaniels is not Kyle Shanahan. No. Darren Waller's not George Kittle. You know, Christian McCaffrey and Josh Jacobs, I know Josh Jacobs was great, but you could argue those guys are interchangeable. Offensive line, edge San Francisco. Defensive line, edge San Francisco. Linebacking core, edge San Francisco. Secondary, Edge San Francisco. That's everything that had to go right for Jimmy Garoppolo to succeed. In, Barely. Yeah, in the NFC West. That's what he had to have happen. There's not that same feel in the Raiders system. In the Raiders front office. It's, it's dysfunction. It's been dysfunction for a long time. And Jimmy Garoppolo has only known stability, structure, foundation. New England to San Francisco. And I don't think he's going to get it with the Las Vegas Raiders. As it was announced today, he signed a three-year deal to become the Raiders' new quarterback and replacement to Derek Carr. All right, let's take our first break of the first hour. When we come back, we'll be joined by Patrick Fitzgerald live as we will talk some Big 12 basketball and NCAA tournament and where all these regions shake out and maybe how far some of those Big 12 teams can go. You're listening to The Night Shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB. Back here on the night shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB. I'm your host, Jack Johnson. Dylan Michaels running everything behind the glass and on the board. And now we are joined in studio by a very special guest, Patrick Fitzgerald of ESPN. And, and Patrick, first things first, I really appreciate you coming in studio, taking the time out of your night to join us here. But you've been very busy. You work in the Big 12 tournament. You work the Big 12 Women's Championship game. You work with guys like Dick Vitale. You work with Fran Frischel. You work with Boog. All these guys with the talent, the stats, all that. So before we get into any further questions... I want to hear about your start. How did all of this come to working with these guys and working in college basketball and college football, for that matter? Wow. Hey, thanks for having me, Jack, first of all. Um, funny story. Uh, about 15 years ago, I uh, thought to myself, I am a sports geek. I want to do something in sports. Um, I had a friend um, that I'd known for quite a while named Kevin Shank, who uh, is one of the most talented producers, uh, people ever in television. And um, I reached out to him and I said, what can I do? How do I get into television? And he said, you have to, uh, what I would do if I were you is reach out to John Dennison at Metro Sports mm-hmm. at the time. Yeah, John Dennison um, was just what he did by creating Metro Sports. Nothing had ever happened like that before. Not only did he, you know, start that but just by getting the royals and all that kind of stuff so uh 
So I went there one day and uh, sat down, and I said, I want to get in television. I said, okay, um, you know what? I think we have a uh, graphics Chiron position open. I said, cool. He said, you know, you know how to work computers and <laughs> stuff like that, don't you? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. I had never turned on a computer in my life. <laughs> never had I turned on a computer in my life. And so uh, so they said, all right, um, here's what we're going to do. We're going to start you on high school game of the week when Metro had that on Friday nights. And uh, we're going to let Kayla Manning, who was, who's the best graphics person around, we're going to let her uh, show you how everything works and uh, teach you. When I walked in the truck, Kayla's like, oh, great. I got to teach someone else. Here we go. Here we go. Um, long into that story is, is that uh, Kayla and I are very good friends this day, and she's also very, very talented. But um, so went from uh, doing high school game of the week, and then uh, Dennison put me on the uh, UMKC package, then the Wichita State package, mm. then the Missouri Valley Conference package. Um, and so I did all that, and then um, I ended up after that going uh, doing stage managing for the pregame and postgame for uh, Joel Goldberg, stud also, and uh, Paul Splitorf, God mm-hmm. rest his soul. And uh, so I did that, and then about ten years ago started with ESPN, and um, started just uh, I was a stage manager. They call mm-hmm. it booth coordinator now, stage manager. Um, and so uh, finally uh, met a guy named Scott Gustafson, who's a producer for ESPN, once again, one of the best, and uh, started uh, working my way up. And um, now I'm pretty much doing talent stats for uh, all the uh, great broadcasters at ESPN. And um, during football season, I... Uh, travel with uh, Courtney Lyle mm-hmm. every game that she has um, we're in a different uh, city every uh, week and it's been it's been a lot of fun it's interesting there's a lot of uh, a lot of things you uh, don't realize on live sports television that goes on and um, it's it's uh, it's been a journey yeah it, it sounds I love the the first part of your story saying that you were you knew how to work a computer never tried a computer before and I feel like a lot of that working in sports you have to adjust on the fly when you're working with broadcasters, when stats come up. I mean, I mean, one of the things I'm always fascinated by with on-air type of stuff, you'll hear these stats be thrown. These stats pop up on the bottom line. You're going, man, even think about that. This, this stat was broken from the 1980-82 or 1984 Georgetown team. Like, are you one of those people on the staff behind the scenes coming up with that, finding those stats? How does all that work behind the scenes? First of all, I'm such a uh, sports geek that um – I could, uh, if you asked me the '88 uh, Oakland A's lineup, I could tell you Carney Lansford played third base. <laughs> I'm not proud of that, but uh, that's just kind of—it's good know. knowledge to have. Yeah, it's, well, you know that with a it's token, a good bar bet. That with a token will get you on a bus, right? <laughs> um, but no, uh, I've just always—you know—you got to just be passionate. You got to love something you do. Yeah, and um, and I think. And I've always been a, spat, a stats geek, also, and I think that's kind of what helps out. And um, just, I mean, it's doing every sport is great too. Not just, you know, you see the, the Big Twelve tournament, cool, yeah, whatever. You see, mm-hmm. but but 
I love doing women's volleyball, softball, baseball, whatever. I mean, every sport is, uh, you know, like yesterday at Municipal. Those Iowa State fans for that ladies game, they were crazy. They were mm-hmm. crazy. Iowa State fans obviously travel. They and, travel and, very and well great. here. Great. But um, so, yeah, it was, uh, it's just, it's a passion and it's cliche, but uh, if you love what you do, you never have a job, something like that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's just, I've been very uh, uh, lucky with all the people that I've come in contact with and all the great people. And so, um, yeah. We're talking with Pat Fitzgerald of ESPN, does great work with the broadcasting team and was down there in Kansas City working for the men's championship and the women's championship. Uh, Walk me through this Big 12 tournament, how you go about preparing each and every night because you're working with guys like Fran Fraschilla. You're working with Dickie V, who did the championship game between Kansas and Texas. So if you show up, let's say, probably how are you, three, four hours before tip-off, a little bit like somewhere around that ballpark, what is the average prep like for a game? Let's say if it, let's go to Wednesday night. When it was West Virginia Texas Tech, what goes into that? What goes in that prep of finding all the stats and and all the numbers you can about those two teams? Well, they um, of course each uh, university uh, puts out game notes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you have to um, go over those, and also when you not only a game that you're doing, but when you watch as much basketball and stuff like that, you kind of know you don't know exactly everything. Yeah. But um, so you go over the game notes beforehand. Um, you write down stuff for that. Um, the broadcaster, the play-by-play person, um, and the analyst will say, mm-hmm. "Hey, look for uh, uh, look for this. Look for yeah. that. Uh, look for you know what uh, they average twenty-one uh, turnovers a game, and so let's uh, keep track of those. Keep yeah. track of those. So you're in communication with uh, the talent and um, stuff like that beforehand. And then also um, we have a. Uh, uh, stat, uh, a monitor that has stat broadcast on it that has live in-house up-to-date stats. So I would love to say that I'm real smart and like Mike Swanson used to do when he did stats with Keith Jackson, he was keeping them by hand. Eh, I kind of <laughs> cheat a little bit. I look at the uh, stat broadcast monitor, okay? And mm-hmm. so it, it updates and it'll say, it'll have notes that says, here's a 9-0 run mm-hmm. or here's that. But you still have to keep track of uh, other things also. And uh, and so there's a lot that goes into it that uh, people – I remember when I used to – you know, when I was a kid and I'd watch Harry Carey doing the Cubs, mm-hmm. I'd say, you know, Arnie Harris was his producer. Arnie would tell him, you know, everything that was going on. I thought, how does Harry know that? Yeah. And uh, – <laughs> but no, there's a lot of, lot of people that mm-hmm. are involved in the whole production. Well, see, when you're working with somebody like ESPN or you think like CBS – there's such little margin for error. You can't be throwing out fake stats. Sometimes, you know, it's technology. Bad things can happen. Somebody realizes they're not on air. They say something. We've seen it over the course of history <laughs> in sports. We've seen it in MLB. We've mm-hmm. seen it in NBA, mm-hmm. NFL, and college sports. I have a great story I want to get into that you were telling me before. Yeah. All of that. But, you know, when you're dealing with that, I want to know maybe this is more so of maybe a negative thing, but do you remember maybe your first debacle working or having a bad stat or, or not keeping track of it or not being communication? Like, can you think back to a time where you went, man, I might have really screwed up there? Which one out of a thousand uh, should I? <laughs> I'll, I'll start with this one. So uh, um, when the first game that I actually did um, uh, by myself as uh, far as doing graphics mm-hmm. was a Missouri game. A Missouri basketball game, and they crewed 
this is, I mean, I'd never done anything on my own. And they crewed me on it the night before. And I remember the person who uh, assigned me to it said, are you ready for it? And I said, I get said, you're either going to sink or swim. Mm -hmm. It's like, all right, cool. I'm nervous. I'm like, oh, man, oh, man, oh, man. And uh, so get there, get everything prepped. Everything's cool. I'm like, oh, I got this. I got this. And so I'm not only doing the current the stats, but I'm also doing the bug on a different channel because there's one channel on the front, one channel on the back, and I'm doing the bug, which keeps the score. We went to the first break. Missouri was up. I forget who they were playing. Kent State or someone. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't a big game because I wouldn't have been on it if it would have been. But uh, Missouri was up fourteen six. So I type in as we're going to break, but I typed in Kent State fourteen, Missouri six instead of the opposite. And I looked up and we went to break and I go. Should I say to anyone that I messed that up, or should I just let it go? <laughs> no one ever noticed, but I did. And uh, so, yeah, you know what? There, there's always mistakes. When you're, as you know, when you're on live television or radio, you gotta roll with it. Something's gonna happen, and you just gotta. Hey, you know what? I'll get the next one. So, we're talking with Patrick Fitzgerald of ESPN. Does work on the broadcast team with Dick Vitale, Fran Fraschill, and I gotta dive in this story because you're telling me right before we went on the air. Of course, the Big 12 championship game between Kansas and Texas, it was no secret to anybody. That was one of the worst performances Kansas had had all season long. They'd been blown out in five of their seven games, but for some reason, maybe it's recency bias, that just felt a little bit worse because you just got trounced by Texas and Austin. Then you get your ass kicked again in Kansas City against that same Texas team. But you work with Dick Vitale. You're good friends with Dick Vitale. (laughs) Tell me about that interaction when Dickie V maybe thought that he was off air when he actually was on air. Oh, Dickie's great, and I'm just so glad that he's uh, feeling so much better and um, and and has uh, defeated cancer, which is just an awful thing. I have a couple people who mean a lot to me that are affected by that also. Um, but uh, so <laughs> we were going to break, and uh, Dickie uh, thought that we were – at, we were on break. That we were in black. But um, so he said on the hot mic, he said, uh, uh, man, this is the worst I've seen Kansas play. And Boog kind of looked at me. I looked at Boog, all that kind of stuff. We got done, and Dickie looked said, were we on air? We were on air. And Boog, Shambi, who's one of the best in the business and also does Cubs games, stuff like that, and uh, said, yeah, yeah. Dickie just kind of threw his hands up. He said, Oh, well, you win some, you lose some. I'm 80 years old. What do I care? <laughs> but just – and still knows everything, does a great job, friendly, um, just down to earth, does so much for uh, the V Foundation for uh, yeah. pediatric cancer and um, just just a great dude. So Now, looking ahead to the NCAA tournament, of course, Selection Sunday was yesterday. You've got – KU, you've got K-State, you've got Missouri, you got KU actually going to the West region, ready to go to Las Vegas if they were to make it to the second weekend. You have Missouri, who is in the South region, I believe it is, South, South region against Utah State, and Kansas State in the East region as a three seed. But let's start with the Kansas State Wildcats, who they were at one point maybe going to be a two seed, then they dropped as low as a four seed. And I thought at one point they were going to maybe stay in Des Moines, then it was Albany, then it was Denver. They land in Greensboro. They'll be taking on Montana State late on Friday night. But what can you make about this Kansas State team? You've seen them all year long working Big 12 games. It's a Kansas State team that was preseason number 10 in the league. They completely overachieved. They get as high as top five in the nation at one point. And they did it. Jerome Tang did it with his new coaching staff. 
pretty much having to overhaul the entire roster. And keep in mind, it's after they lost their best player from last year, Nigel Pack. So what could you make about this season as a whole from Kansas State going from projected finish last in this conference to being a team that finishes third and gets a three seed in the NCAA tournament? Jerome Tang. Mm-hmm. Easy answer. I would stop yeah. there, but you have to understand, which you, which you know, that um, he had two players. He had two yeah. players. And um, he came in, and Keontae Johnson, what a story. I mean, you know, coming from Florida, I mean, that man almost died on the court. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, he at Florida that year, he was preseason SEC player of the year. Okay. Mm-hmm. And not only to come back and play at the level he has, I mean, he he's lucky to be alive. Um and and just the, the energy that Tang brings and just the steadiness and stuff like that. You know, and Scott Drew, what a great dude. And, and um, you know, uh, he was with Scott for 19 years, I think. And, and you know, uh, Coach Tang had a lot of opportunities, a lot of interviews. Mm-hmm. He was waiting for the right one. He was waiting for the right job. And he got the right job. He loves Manhattan and his beautiful wife and his family. They love it there. They love it there. And people bought in. And and it's so great because the last five years that I've done games in Manhattan, when Bruce Weber was there, nothing against Bruce Weber, but it was dead. Mm-hmm. No one was there. You know, um, the octagon of doom, as they say, is yeah. uh, is back. And that place is rocking. And um, – you know they uh, they have to hit shots, obviously. Uh, but uh, Marquise Noel, I mean, as soon as that dude steps across half court, he's in range. Mm-hmm. And um, they struggled uh, when they lost uh, to TCU, I believe, and they yeah. couldn't. Um, they start, you know, they started out really well, and and the and it was a huge K State crowd at T Mobile, mm-hmm. and um, they start out and eleven uh, two, I think, is what they were up. And I thought, here we go, here we go. But then they kind of became one dimensional, and Marquise couldn't hit anything. Uh, Desi Sills had four of the best blocks I've ever Turned seen. Turning LeBron, seemingly, it, it, what, yeah. it, then he did chasing them down from behind, <laughs> and they were violent blocks yeah. too. They were violent, but uh, so yeah, and uh, he just he brings that, and you know, and learning from Scott Drew. And, um, and you know, Scott Drew's dad, Homer, Hall of Famer, one of the best of all time. Uh, Bryce Drew is his brother, who's a great dude. I worked with him a couple of years at ESPN when he was broadcasting before he went to Grand Canyon. He made the NCAA tournament again. Mm-hmm. Just a great, great, great family. But what Tang brings is not only uh, as a just a great mind and a great coach, but just the energy and the compassion and the love that he has for his players. And you mm-hmm. can just see it. You can see it. Yeah, I think that you know one of the main guys in Marquise Noel, as you brought up, he had every right to leave after Bruce Oberlove. His entire team basically left except for Ish Masood. They stay. Yep. They completely overhaul this roster. You had a guy like Naquan Tomlin. You had Desi Sills, who was on his third or fourth college team coming over from Arkansas State. I believe was also played Power 5 at Arkansas in the SEC. But, man, what K-State's done in just year one under Jerome Tang was – Completely, you know, a a stretch of the imagination, you could say, right. from what everybody thought of. I mean, you thought maybe this team could be competitive once they got Keontae Johnson, because at one point before the collapse, he was a preseason SEC player of the year. He was a stud, but you don't really know when a guy sits out for that long. And when it was all said and done, this Kansas State team, 
never really had a big-time lull. They struggled on the road, but now you're not playing on the road. You're just playing on neutral court. So I think they got a good draw in that East region, Montana State, then maybe another matchup with Kentucky, who they got in 2018. Do you see this Kansas State team maybe going as far as the Elite Eight? Well, just think if uh, Nigel Pack wouldn't have gotten 700000 oh, from Miami in a, in a Mercedes-Benz, you know? Imagine have him. three All-Big 12 players. Imagine <laughs> him in the backcourt next to Marquise, you know? Yeah. Um, but uh, I think that um, the other thing about K-State is um, Wyatt Thompson, the, who's also brilliant, the uh, play-by-play for K-State, um, he was telling me a couple weeks ago, he said, wait till you see these three guys that we have coming in. Wait till you see this. Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, he's just going to keep getting better and better. Yeah. K-State lacks on the bigs. They, they have two yeah. bigs. They're not very athletic, okay? Mm-hmm. One of them's just learning to kind of play, stuff like that. Um, but what Jerome Tang will do is not only continue to bring in uh, talent, but he'll be able to coach them up. Yeah, and um, so that's he's 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 very very good coach, deserving of uh, coach of the year. Patrick, real quick before we let you go, some thoughts on Kansas and Missouri. Let's start with Kansas here getting the one seed in the West instead of the Midwest. What's your take on that? That Houston remains the number two overall seed despite losing the conference championship, and now is seemingly we're factoring in margin of defeat because the committee said that Kansas' 20-point loss and their five blowout losses factored in more than Houston's three. Houston lost also, didn't they, to Memphis? Yeah, lost to Memphis, and they also had a quad three loss against Temple. Yeah. Um, Here's the bottom line. you got to win games. you got to win games. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you can look at your draw, and you can say, oh, well, man, we wanted to play in Kansas. Go win. Go win. And that's what Bill will tell them, too. Forget about this. Don't care. Just let's go win. And you know what? We're going to Des Moines. We got to win two games before we even think about going wherever. And and Bill, so I mean, and and thank God that he is feeling better and and, and uh, doing great and um, the best one of the best coaches ever. I mean, uh, you know, and, and uh, Fran had said on air on air <laughs> a couple times. He said, uh, "No disrespect to Norm Roberts, but uh, Dewan Harris could coach this team and they'd be fine." I think you saw on Saturday that that's not true. Yeah. That's not true. Bill has something special. Bill's brilliant. Bill has something special about him and is just um, that he uh, he he just knows um, he knows what to do and knows how to get everything uh, done. So um, and as far as Missouri. Yeah. Dennis Gate. Uh, I mean, man, goodness yeah. gracious. I mean, uh, you know, well-deserved raise, by the way. I'd love to go from yeah. 2.5 to 4 million. That'd be kind of sweet, wouldn't it? Um, but uh, just and, – and, and, you know, Kobe Brown staying around. And don't be surprised if he comes back. Don't yeah. be surprised if he comes back. Um, but, you know, uh, D- Coach Gates brought uh, four players from Cleveland State with him. Uh, you know, got transferred from, uh, you know, Missouri State, uh, Milwaukee, Northern Iowa, blah, blah, blah. And uh, – and Hodge is one of the best touch and shoot quick guys, um, and Nick Honor is a true leader and uh, a floor general. So, well, Patrick, sorry to cut you short, but we really appreciate your time coming on. We can't wait to have you on next time. Hey, I appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me. You are listening to the Night Shift on Sports Radio Eight Ten WHB.
Back here on the Night Shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB, I'm your host, Jack Johnson, alongside Dylan Michaels. And a big thank you to Patrick Fitzgerald of ESPN stopping by in studio, giving us a great behind-the-scenes look of what happens on broadcast games with with Dickie V, with Fran for show, with Boo Shambi. Uh, that was fascinating. That was a lot of stuff that I didn't know beforehand, so it was great to get that insight from Patrick Fitzgerald. We'll be sure to get him on the show a lot more moving forward. But as we do every single Wednesday, and we've had to bounce around a little bit. Unfortunately, can't get Joel in studio tonight, but not to worry. We have Joel Penfield of the KC Sports Network on the phone line. And be sure to listen to his Royals podcast of Run One Royal Way. That's One Royal Way. They do a great job covering everything. The Royals, and they're 14-2 and right now. Don't worry. We'll talk boys in blue later on in the show with Max Reaper of Royals Review. But Joel's a five-tool guy. Joel can talk NFL with us. Joel can talk MLB with us. He can talk college football, college hoops. And for tonight, because he's so flexible, we're going to talk NCAA tournament with Joel. Joel, how are we doing tonight? Oh, I'm doing all right. It's interesting looking at the bracket here and knowing my team was quite literally the first team out of the tournament. So it's just uh, just putting salt in a fresh wound is, is all this is. But I am excited to be on. And uh, the NCAA tournament is one of my favorite uh, times of the year, regardless of whether my team is in it or not. Man, how can it not be? There is no other event in sports like this. I think a lot of people will be taking off work starting on Thursday when you have those early tip-offs starting even before noon. But, Joel, that's actually who I want to starting with, surprising or not. We got a dump button for you, so if you do get a little bit carried away, not to worry, Dylan's got you behind the <laughs> scenes there. But you're Oklahoma State Cowboys, the team number 69 in the NCAA tournament, right on the outside looking in to the NCAA tournament. I know you have very strong and harsh feelings about the NCAA, but since you are my good friend, since you are regular on your show on this show, I want to give you the floor right now and let you rant about your Oklahoma State Cowboys and why they should have been in this bracket somewhere in the full 68 team field. I mean, it, the only I guess the only gripe I really have is I know, I know Ken Palm is not necessarily like the end all be all, but yeah. It's a pretty good indicator of who the top teams in college basketball are. I believe Oklahoma State was number 44 in Ken Palm, the top 15 defense. Not going to talk about the fact that they can't figure out how to score most nights, but win eight games in the best conference, the undisputed best conference in college basketball. Everybody was saying eight wins gets Oklahoma State in. Most of the results be damned. Uh, but then they lose to Texas, and then all of a sudden that puts them out automatically, uh, despite sweeping multiple teams uh, there that are in the field, uh, like Iowa State specifically. They beat West Virginia. They beat Kansas State. Um, they they held their own for the majority of the year, but you know they lose seven of nine going into the you know at the end of the season. They lose one of their best players, Neighbor Anderson, who helps run the offense as a major catalyst on defense and both really faltered down the stretch. I, I can't say that I'm shocked that they missed, uh, but to miss the tournament by one game, or by essentially one game, um, you know, don't lose, don't blow massive leads to Southern Illinois and UCF earlier in the season. We're probably having a different conversation as Oklahoma State is one of the last teams in. Uh, but very fitting in a year where they got an undeserved postseason ban last year. Uh, they have an opportunity to get in this year, and, of course, they are the literal first team out. So, unfortunate, it is what it is. 
unfortunately, we're getting kind of accustomed to not making the tournament as Oklahoma State fans only made it a couple of times in the last eight years. So it is what it is. Now, Joel, let's go region by region here in the NCAA tournament. We'll start up in the top top left corner with the South region, Alabama as the number one overall seed. First things first, any gripe with Alabama being the number one overall seed? I haven't heard much because I think Alabama's got the best pure basketball player in the land right now in Brandon Miller. Uh, They did, by definition, dominate their conference, dominate in the SEC tournament. I don't think there should be much of an argument as for Alabama not being the number one overall seed, unless you can convince me otherwise. I, I don't think there's much of an argument to the contrary there. Uh, it's just a matter of whether you believe Alabama was, you know, the best overall throughout the course of the season. Now, down the stretch, they really proved that. But also dominating the SEC is a very, very low bar to clear, considering how down it was this season. I mean, Missouri was good, but they were a top-four seed in the SEC and had a double bye. I, I don't think Missouri was a top four seed in any conference otherwise. So there's some of that element of it. Like I said, Brandon Miller. Uh, I'm not even. We don't need to get into the off-field stuff, mm-hmm. but on the or on the court, he is very good. Nate Oates is a very good coach. Uh, they certainly certainly got that thing rolling there. It's not necessarily a tough region either. There are a couple of teams that maybe could could sneak up, but they're, I think they're just too dominant offensively for me to believe that anyone can really hang with them. Maybe Arizona, uh, but I don't foresee many lower seeds getting out of that region uh, other than Alabama. We're talking with Joel Penfield of KC Sports Network, and be sure to go check out his podcast on the Kansas City Royals, the boys in blue, on One Royal Way. That's the name of the podcast. Joel does a great job talking everything with the Royals and, of course, just weeks away from the regular season. We'll be talking a lot of Royals with Joel in the future, but right now we are talking some NCAA tournament because Selection Sunday was yesterday. Sticking with the South region, Joel, I think, as you pointed out, there's a couple of teams that could go the distance. I do think the 8-9 matchup is a little spicy for Alabama. You get a Big 12 team like West Virginia is the 9 do like Maryland a little bit coming out of the ACC at one point. They were top 20 in the nation, but it kind of feels like every one seed has a tough 8-9 matchup. Iowa's had its good games. Auburn's had its good games. Arkansas, of course, and Illinois. And then Memphis just won the conference tournament. And FAU won 30-plus games this year. So you can't really say anybody got an easy out with an 8-9 matchup. But in the South region, could you make a case, Joel, that maybe West Virginia as the 9 is the toughest second-round matchup for any of the one seeds? I, maybe. Um, I think certainly Arkansas, as much as I don't like Eric Musselman, Arkansas, uh, you know, has been solid this year. Memphis, you know, gave a really good game to Houston. I think they won that game, if I recall. They won on Sunday, uh, so yes. They lost earlier yeah, in the regular season. That's right. That's right. So, yeah, they're riding high right now. And Purdue, as good as Zach Eady is, if he's in foul trouble, they've been pretty vulnerable mm-hmm. down the stretch of the season. So I'd probably say that's more likely of a tougher test. I think Alabama's playing too good right now. Houston's playing too good. And then Kansas uh, is playing really well. If Jalen Wilson is on, uh, you really have to bank on that, though, if you're Kansas, because we've seen down the stretch. There are not many games, uh, at least in the last few weeks, where if Jalen Wilson doesn't have 25, you know, who else is really going to give you a 15- to 18-point performance to keep you in one? But I don't think Illinois or Arkansas this year is good enough to, to hang with Kansas for 40 minutes. Of some of the top five seeds, excluding a team like Alabama, because I don't think they're going to be losing to the 16-seed play-in game, of San Diego State as the five, Virginia as the four, Baylor as the three, and Arizona as the two, who is the most likely to be upset 
on the first game of the first weekend? You know, I, I hate picking or like talking about trendy upsets because how mm-hmm. often do those actually happen? Yeah. It's always the ones that we don't expect. But in the five twelve matchup, Charleston's a really good team. I've heard a lot of good things about them. Admittedly, have not watched much of them play, but that's one I've heard talked about a lot. It's a five twelve matchup. Uh, those games are essentially a coin flip. Five seeds are twenty one and nineteen in their last forty. So, it you know we'll we'll see what happens. There's always a couple of those a year. I'd say that one's the most likely. Furman could be kind of sneaky, but I think Virginia is just too solid defensively. Tony Bennett is too good of a coach. They're not going to get bounced in the first round. There's, I'd say San Diego State definitely on upset alert in this region. Uh, Joel, I was vocal about this a little bit yesterday on 810 when Josh and I did the Selection Sunday show, but I'm really high on a team like Arizona. There's something about Arizona, uh-huh. despite being a two-seed. I know they weren't tested a lot in the Pac-12 outside of teams like UCLA, but Ken Palm? Likes him a little bit. I would say that by the eye test, a lot of people should like Arizona. But I was kind of shut down that there really can't be a case for Arizona being the team to beat instead of Alabama. I tried to find a little you know, spot of light there or a little tunnel where I could try to make a prediction as for Arizona making to the Final Four. But could you get on my side of that and say maybe Arizona, not Alabama, is the team to beat in the South region? You know, I think... Uh, I now team to beat. I don't agree with, but could they give Alabama a run out of this region? Absolutely. I think they're one of the better coach teams in the country. Uh, they've proven that over the last couple of years. They're doing it without like a huge big name guy, like they had Ben Matherin last year. Uh, but they're not really doing it with a huge name necessarily, and they're just finding ways to win ball games. And you know they gave UCLA a run a couple of times and. Well, we'll see how it ends up, but I, I think they certainly could give Alabama a run. Even if I think Alabama probably gets out of the region, that's going to be the, the big test, I think. This one, the chalk is not cor- the correct way to put it, but it feels mm-hmm. like it's going to be the top two seeds in the region that end up getting there at the end. Just so I can get you on air of saying it, are you going with any upset here to represent the South region in the Final Four, or is it going to be Alabama on a runaway? Yeah, I don't think it's going to be in a runaway, but I think Alabama ends up getting out of there. Okay, let's move down to the East region. We're talking with Joel Penfield of KC Sports Network. Be sure to check out his podcast on the Kansas City Royals of One Royal Way. But we are talking NCAA tournament for the time being. Let's look at this East region. I don't think it's really a shock to anybody that this is the weakest region on paper. Purdue as the one seed. You have Memphis and FAU, Florida Atlantic, that is, as the nine seed. Five seed is the Duke Blue Devils. They did win the ACC Conference Tournament. They'll be taking on 12-seeded Oral Roberts. The four seed is the Tennessee Volunteers, though they've shown to be a lot different team without Ziegler, their true number one point guard. They'll be taking on the Raging Cajuns as the 13th seed in that matchup. Kentucky is the sixth seed against the 11-seeded Providence Friars out of the Big East. Three seed out of the Big 12, the Kansas State Wildcats taking on 14-seeded Montana State, the 7-seeded Michigan State against 10-seeded USC, and the 2-seed is Shaka Smart's Golden Eagles of Marquette against the 15-seeded Vermont Catamounts out of the American East. I mean, am I, you know, kind of being too critical here? Am I being too harsh in calling the East region the weakest region? Or do you agree with that statement that with Purdue being the one and not maybe an overhaul of Big 12 teams, it's a little bit weak? It, It could be. Purdue has certainly got a, a really easy road to at least the Elite Eight, um, they, you know, Sweet 16 at least. Um, 
I'm not going to count out Shaka Smart at a mid-major in March. You know, it was easy to do that when he was at Texas, yeah. but he's really got Marquette rolling. They were a top-10 team most of the year. Tyler Kolick is a fantastic player. He's able to kind of get back to the Havoc stuff that he was able to thrive at VCU. I would not be shocked, honestly, if Marquette got out of this region. Again, I think it, as good as Purdue is, it really is incredibly Zach E. reliant. He is awesome. But if he gets in foul trouble, you know, who else is really going to go off for them? They don't have a Jaden Ivey type this year. Uh, a lot, another lottery type guy to handle the offense if he's in foul trouble or just not playing well. So that one is going to be incredibly interesting. I don't think I'll call my shot and say Marquette gets out of there, but I wouldn't be shocked by it either. I think our very own Curtis Seabolt of the program did have Marquette making it to the Final Four as well out of the East region, but you never know. I felt like, you know, looking at this region, Joel, it's going to be the one that produces that obscure Cinderella team. I think this year we get kind of one of those seven, eight, or nine seeds in the Final Four. How last year North Carolina was, uh, I believe, an eight or a nine seed. I can't remember which one it was, but that was technically a Cinderella type of team. My prediction, though I'm not 100% confident in it, was Memphis. Could you see a team like Memphis out of the American after beating Houston being one of those teams that could represent the East in the Final Four? Certainly, they, they, you know, that's a huge confidence builder. Be one of the best teams in the country in your conference final. Kind of riding hot going into March. And oftentimes, that's what happens for some of these teams. They just get hot at the end of the year, and they just ride that into March. And, it, you know, and, and it's almost an any given Sunday sort of scenario where, yeah. you know, in a one-off, you know, one team, that's how you get a 215 upset or the 16 1 upset that we saw a few years ago with UMBC in Virginia. So it certainly could happen. But I think Purdue is just too good, frankly. Uh, kind of ends that little run for Memphis. But who knows, man? There's this, it's such an inexact science talking about all this stuff. Like on paper, you can look at all the stats, you look at all the Ken Palm graphs, and then at the end of the day, Memphis could go out and beat Purdue by 20. So who knows? I am very confident in one upset, though. Another 5-12, but I think Oral Roberts is going to beat Duke. Oral, Oral Roberts has everything you want in a Cinderella, like, huge upset early on. ton of veteran players, senior players. Max A. Smith is one of the best shooters in the country, one of the best point guards in the country. He was a giant killer the last time ORU got in the tournament a couple of years ago when they beat Ohio State and got to the Sweet 16. And Duke on the other side, while incredibly talented, I think John Shire has done a really good job. you got four freshmen in that team that have never played in the NCAA tournament, and ORU's got a couple guys that have been there, done that, even if they're a few years removed. Uh, but uh, this is another one where I think Max Asen has kind of cements himself as one of the uh, a March legend uh, between two NCAA tournaments. Yeah, I think people can go back to the COVID year when 15 seeded Oral Roberts kind of made a little bit of run, believe beat Ohio State, and then their journey was cut short in the Sweet 16 by Arkansas. But as you mentioned, Aismas almost hit a game winner that was damn near mm-hmm. from half court. So it's an Oral Roberts team that has some experience. You know, Paul Mills has done a great job with this staff. Uh, they're 30-4 and four out of the Summit League this year. They're 56th in Ken Palm. And I kind of like what you said there, Joel, that you know it's a team that really is your perfect, your prototypical upset team. But also in the NCAA tournament, who knows? Really, you know, those teams sometimes can be beaten by 20 in the first round against a team like Duke. But I can maybe get on board with an upset like that because Ken Palm likes him. 
I test certainly likes them. They're thirty and four. Uh, their offense, I believe, has been pretty good as well for the, oh, yeah. the national rating. So that's always something you look for with an early upset round. Is you want a team that can score really well and just be good enough defensively to maybe pull off an upset against a team, a powerhouse like the Duke Blue Devils, just because of brand name alone. Looking more so at the bottom of the, the bracket here, you have Kansas State as the three seed, Montana State as the 14th seed. So a lot of Kansas State fans on Twitter very thrilled with their bracket. They would like either drawing Kentucky or Providence in that next round. But one of my, I guess, pushback you know, answers here, one of the statements I wanted to make with this is, you know, if you face Kentucky, let's say Kansas State takes care of business against Montana State, they get Kentucky in the round of 32. I don't know about you, Joel, but the lack of a front court with Kansas State concerns me when you have one of the best pure rebounders in all of college basketball in Oscar Sheboy. I mean, should Kansas State fans be looking at that and going, man, I think if we do move on to the second round, you're much rather going to want a team like Providence and not a team like Kentucky, who's shown they're as good as knocking off Tennessee and Knoxville when Tennessee was still healthy, but also maybe as bad as losing back-to-back to Vanderbilt uh, by a comfortable margin. Yeah, I, I think Kentucky is obviously going to be always a challenge to march as much as we don't like John Calipari generally. He's a really good coach. I know the last few marches have not gone well for him, but there's still somewhat of a, a track record there. But I, there's a certain amount of Kansas State where as a team, they kind of don't know what they don't know, and they can go in and just go play and not have to worry about past marches for them. I mean, so the, there's a certain amount of the just go play ball and not worry about anything else that I think Kansas could be advantageous for Kansas State. Because a lot of the, the whoever is left on those uh, this Kentucky team lost to St. Peter's last year with Oscar Sheboy, and there wasn't necessarily a a significant post presence from St. Peter's to speak of in that game either. So who knows? But I I think Kansas State can at least get to the Sweet 16, where they'll likely play Marquette, and then it's a matter of can you can you beat one of the best mid majors in the country. Uh, Get the advantage that Kansas State and other big home schools have is they're battle-tested playing in one of the toughest conferences uh, in the country, the toughest conference in the country. Yeah, and one thing Marquette does really well, which could be a nightmare scenario for Kansas State, is they turn the ball over a lot. And K-State mm-hmm. turns the ball over a lot. So Marquette, good at forcing those turnovers. K-State struggles to take care of the basketball. We'll see if we'll get a Sweet 16 matchup like that. All right, Joe, I'm going to get you to say this over the air again. Who do you have coming out of the East Region? Going to stick with the top dog and the Purdue Boilmakers, or are you going to go with your maybe sneakier pick and get a team like Marquette and Shaka Smart actually go into the Final Four? Now that we're talking about it more, I'm talk- I, I was thinking just going chalk and going with Purdue, but man, what Shaka Smart is able to do in March with mid-majors, uh, like when he was at VCU, man, it, it's tough to bet against. He has got them rolling. He's got them playing some of their best basketball right now. I think Marquette can end up end up out of this region and end up in the Final Four. So Joel of KC Sports Network has Alabama coming out of the South and Marquette coming out of the East region. Before we jump to the Midwest region, I do want to get your thoughts on that Missouri-Utah State game. It's two teams that can really score it. Utah State, one of the best offensive teams in the country. So is Missouri. I think Missouri's better equipped defensively. Demoy Hodge, he averages about two and a half steals per game. When you look at a team like Missouri, Joel, 
what is deemed as a must for this NCAA tournament? I know some people say, hey, they've already overachieved. Whether they win or lose in the first round, it doesn't matter. They're already ahead of schedule. Or do you look at it and say, hey, for Missouri to get props on this year, they got to at least get to the second round. And even if it's a loss to Arizona at that point, you're losing to one of the best teams in all of the NCAA tournament. So is it a must win? Obviously, that, that phrase is stupid. You have to win all of them here. You want to move on. But right. in terms of the the, mor- the morality of this, of what you can deem a season of success, does Missouri have to beat Utah State to get that credit on a successful season? Or have they already passed that point? I think they've already passed that point. I know that the the Dennis Gates hired very quickly. People were able to get up, you know, very quick optimism about where the program was going to head. And some of that was, you know, it happened during the season and said they were a top four seed in the SEC. I think there is a certain amount of house money that they're playing with getting to the tournament and being a, a seventh seed. But at the end of the day, I think they're able to, to win and get to that second round. They're probably going to lose to Arizona, but a massive win for Dennis Gates in year one to get to the tournament and have a very good shot to get to to the second round, uh, to the round of 32. We're talking with Joel Penfield of KC Sports Network. Be sure to check out his podcast on the Kansas City Royals of One Royal Way. Let's jump over now to the Midwest region where the Houston Cougars out of the American Conference are the one seed in the Midwest, not the Kansas Jayhawks, who Joe Lunardi had pretty much locked in as that one seed for the Midwest region. So KU would go from Des Moines to Kansas City, but instead... It'll be this Houston team. So I'll give you the floor on this, Joel. Do you agree with Houston being the one seed in the Midwest, getting that Sweet 16 Elite Eight uh, matchups being in Kansas City? Do you think KU got snubbed a little bit? Do you not care as much because, you know, KU's never really gotten that snubbed in the NCAA tournament before? Where do you stand on Houston getting this one seed in the Midwest region? Uh, Being an impartial observer of it, I was uh, chuckling quite a bit watching. Kansas say they were getting screwed by the NCAA because they don't know what the hell they're talking about as an, <laughs> as an Oklahoma State fan. I know what that's like, so I don't want to hear any words about that. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, you still got to win the game, so I, I don't really I don't really have much to say on it. It is what it is. Um, Houston is still certainly deserving of that spot, too. It's not like they were a shocking one seed that shouldn't have been there. They've been one of the best teams in the country all year. Yeah, and that's what our guest Patrick Fitzgerald of ESPN was saying before you joined Joel. Is like, hey, Bill Self's like it until his team don't complain about what we're playing. You got to go win the games. Like you were in Kansas City for the Sweet 16 Elite Eight matchups a couple of years back, and you lost to Oregon on the doorstep of the yep. Final Four. So it doesn't matter if you're in Vegas. It doesn't matter if you're in Kansas City. It doesn't matter if you're in Denver, Greensboro. None of that. You just got to beat the team that's in front of you, and that's what Kansas has to focus on now. Not so much about getting the Sweet 16 Elite Eight and worrying about where those games would be played. But as for this Midwest region, I think it is more so favorable in the first weekend for Houston. You get a softer 8-9 matchup with Iowa and then Auburn. They get Northern Kentucky as the 16 seed. But maybe some of the sleepers here, you have Miami won the ACC. They're the 5 seed in this region. Indiana from time to time showed they were one of the better Big Ten schools with the 4 seed. Iowa State is a 6. Of course, every Big 12 team is very sneaky good at being a lower seed. But Iowa State's a 6. And keep in mind, they make it to the Sweet 16, they're going to take over Power and Light again. They're going to take over the T-Mobile Center. Oh, so yeah. That is a team you absolutely do not want to see in the second weekend. But when you look at the Midwest region top to bottom here, who is your biggest underdog that could make a deep run as far as maybe the Elite Eight? Oof. It's hard to argue with Iowa State, but 
I think they might, I don't know how I feel about them going up against Xavier in the second yep. round. That that is a massive hangup. It's not like they got a, a softer three seed there that you know that looks beatable. Xavier was solid pretty much all year and won the Big East. So I, I have a hard time betting on that. It, this region's tough because some of these teams look really good on paper, but I don't know how I feel about them in practice on the floor. To me, it feels really chalk, and I think Houston has a really good chance to go and win this thing, um, you know, pretty, pretty handily. Uh, handily being a, a tough term to use in March, but as handily as you probably can to, can get a region. But if Iowa State gets past Xavier and they get to the Sweet 16, with that crowd that they're gonna, you know, and the influx of Iowa State fans are gonna show up in Kansas City. Man, that's going to be a huge home court advantage. That's going to be tough for any team in that region to contend with. Do you disagree with the committee putting Texas A&M as a seven seed? I know the argument was, well, how do you that put that? weird. That yeah, yeah, they finished second in the SEC, yet they get a seven seed. However, people bringing up quad one wins. A&M did not have a very hard non-conference, and the SEC had a little yeah. bit of a down year with Kentucky not really performing up to standards. Arkansas lost 13 games in the regular season. Like It kind of feels like if you didn't really schedule many tough opponents in the non-con, win or lose those games, it's going to hurt you in the NCAA tournament if you just schedule a lot of cupcakes. So you said it's weird that A&M's a seven seed. Give your argument as to why A&M deserved to be higher. You know, I think finishing in you know the top two or three of a major conference still should hold some weight, even if the non-con schedule wasn't that great um, or anything else. But there is something to be said for it, despite the SEC being relatively down. I still think they're a solid team. I think Buzz Williams is a good coach. I don't know if they're able to make it out of the first weekend. You know, drawing Texas is going to be tough, and a Texas-Texas A&M game is going to be kind of spicy. There's a, a rivalry aspect that's you know long long past and about to be renewed, but there still is some of that that Aggie Longhorn hatred that could come out. And if they're able to get to that second weekend, they're going to prove a lot of people wrong that that had them as a, a seven seed when they probably should have been higher. Now Texas and A and M could meet in the second round of that tournament yep. very early on, of course, and that is a great rivalry in college sports. But last question about the Midwest region here. Is Texas the team to beat? I know I asked about Arizona and Alabama, but is Texas as the two after beating Kansas by 20 in the Big 12 tournament, now the team to beat is a two instead of the top-seeded Houston Cougars coming out of the American? I still think it's Houston. They're the one seed for a reason. They were number one in the country for a good portion of this season. I know that it's the American and people want to poo-poo that, but I think what Kelvin Sampson has built there is a legitimate contender. They've been to the Final Four very recently. Uh, I think it was during that COVID year, 20, uh, the 2020-2021 season. And I know they got kind of whacked, and by I think it was by Baylor in that Final Four, but they were able to get there. I think they got to the Elite Eight last year, if I recall. So they are they're very much a contender. I think they're going to be able to get out of this region. They'll probably play Texas uh, in a mm-hmm. new Big 12 matchup, at least for one season. But I'll go with Houston out of this. I, I trust Kelvin Sampson more frankly, as a coach. Um, the name of the now the current interim Texas coach escapes me at the current moment, but it's his first time really coaching a team this far into the tournament that high of a seed. So there's, there is a certain amount of unproven there, and I'll go with the guy that's done it for much longer, Kelvin Sampson. 
Yeah, that's Rodney Terry at the University Thank of Texas you. who filled in for Chris Beard. So just so I get you pen to paper here, you have Houston representing the Midwest in the Final Four. Yeah. Okay, so you have so far Alabama, a one out of the South. You have Mar- Marquette, I believe it was, you say, as yeah. the two seed coming out of the East. Then you have Houston out of the Midwest uh, in the Final Four there. So last region, the West region, where the Kansas Jayhawks are the number one seed, they'll take on Howard this Thursday at, I believe, 1 p.m., if I'm not mistaken. So Eastern time, I believe Jeff Goodman put that out, got everybody thrown off. But I believe Kansas at 1 p.m. on Thursday. You can listen to that right here on Sports Radio 810, WHB. Arkansas on 8, Illinois 9, St. Mary's the 5, VCU the 12, UConn, who Ken Palm has the fourth best team in the country. They are the four seed in this region. Iona, the 13th seed. Rick Patino's team. TCU, the sixth seed. They'll get the winner of Pitt and Mississippi State. Gonzaga is the three against Grand Canyon, the 14. Northwestern, the seven. Boise State, the 10. And UCLA, who's pretty banged up. They are the two seed. They'll be taking on UNC Asheville as the 15th seed. Uh, to me, Joel, when I look at all the entire bracket breakdown here, I went to a potential Sweet 16 matchup for Kansas and UConn. Ken Palm absolutely loves UConn. They were top five early on in the season. They got really hot down the stretch. But I thought to myself, if those two teams match up, it kind of feels like at that point the winner of that game is going to go on to the Final Four. Would you agree with that, or would you pick another team, maybe UCLA, a Gonzaga, or St. Mary's, to make it out of the West region? It's The only thing that I feel about UConn is, I, I just don't know. They had some. I feel like they had some head head scratching losses and some weird games during the season. But uh, Hurley is a really good coach. Sonogo is one of the best big men in the country. Kansas, I feel like Canada. They have the championship pedigree uh, with a lot of guys still returning from the the national championship team last year. But at certain times in the year, they felt very very Jalen Wilson dependent and is just hey go win the game for us. We need you and not everybody else shows up that night, uh, or they're just pulled and they need Jalen Wilson to just put the team on his back. He, if he flips up, you know, do you really trust Grady Dick in this spot? Uh, do you, you know, is K.J. Adams going to be able to, to lift you a little bit? Uh, can DeJuan Harris really take over a game offensively? I'm just I'm not sure, and this is not me trying to discredit Kansas. It's just some, I think there are some question marks there. Mm. Out of this region, I really do like UCLA. I think Javi... Uh, Jaime Jaquez and Tiger Campbell are a great one-two punch, a great veteran backcourt, uh, or just you know veteran starters there uh, that have made it to the Final Four, have been a part of some of these really solid teams over the last couple of years that Mick Cronin's put together. It's really interesting because I found this stat, and three teams in this region actually fall into this category. So every national champion since 2002 has been both a top 40 Ken Palm offense and a top, at least a top 22 defense. And UCLA, Kansas, and UConn fall into that category. So the other two, the other teams are Texas, Alabama, Creighton, and Houston. Just for those the seven teams that fall into that category of teams that have won national championships that have a top 40 offense and a top 22 defense. So it's, it's going to be really interesting. I think it's going to come down to those three teams. But take the teams that play in a little bit better conference against better competition – uh, and Kansas UCLA ends up being that that elite eight matchup, and I'm going to lean UCLA because I think they just have more guys to go to with the the tournament experience. Uh, that if one guy's shots aren't falling, it's not you know not all is lost. Uh, I think 
that that's the way I will go with it. I think Kansas falls just short of getting back to the Final Four with an opportunity to repeat. We're talking with Joel Penfield of KC Sports Network. Be sure to check out his Royals podcast, One Royal Way. They do a great job covering everything you need to know about the boys in blue in spring training and heading into the regular season. Joel, last question for you. I know you'll have UCLA coming out of this region, the West region that is, but more specifically with Gonzaga, a three seed in the NCAA tournament. Every time they've been a one seed, they've had this added pressure of, you haven't played anybody all year long, nobody wants you to be a one seed, and they usually falter, with the exception of that COVID year when they lost to Baylor in the national championship game. But maybe is it a better spot now for Gonzaga? They are three seeds, still a top seed in this region, but maybe they don't have the pressure this time around of being this team that has to perform at the level of a one seed, typically. That's a really interesting angle that I hadn't thought about. That's a very good point. My only counter to that is they lost some head-scratching games mm-hmm. in the West Coast Conference this year that they normally don't lose. Normally they run roughshod through that. The occasional loss to a St. Mary's who's in that, in that conference and in this region as well. I'm just not sure if this is the team that's going to be able to make that run. They don't really have a, another star next to Drew Timmy like they've had in the past, uh, like a Jalen Suggs or a Shed Holmgren uh, to compliment him. And that's not. And Drew Timmy is a great player, but I don't know if he can be an incredibly dominant player without a, a true number two. And they shouldn't sleep on Grand Canyon either. They're one of the better mid majors that's in the tournament right now. They're very well coached. They're going to have a really tough test early on, which is not something they often have. So it, it'll be an interesting test for them early on there against Grand Canyon. Joel, thanks so much for your time as always. We hope to see you in studio next time. Absolutely, let's do it. There he goes. That's Joel Penfield of KC Sports Network. He's so flexible. He's a five-tool guy here. He talks NFL. He talks NBA. He talks college sports. He talks football. He talks basketball. Uh, He talks Royals a lot of times. As we mentioned, that podcast, you need to go check out of One Royal Way. But Joel just always does such a great job there uh, and being able to be so flexible here because when Joel, you know, wants to talk something, Sometimes we have other plans here. We need to talk another segment because you can't just load everything up with Royals. We do have Max Reaper, who we had to push from last week, last Wednesday that was, to this week. We have Max joining us at 930. But coming up after the break, we'll be joined by our good friend Lance Twidwell of the Spoken Podcast. He had some thoughts on the Chiefs' new left tackle, Jawan Johnson. We'll let him have the floor next on the Night Shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB. here jesse bates the pro bowl safety for the cincinnati Bengals, is signing with the atlanta falcons on a huge four-year 64 million dollar deal gets 36 million dollars fully guaranteed in the first two years so 18 million dollars over the first two years of the deal one of the top defenders in the nfl lands with the atlanta falcons no doubt we are back here on the night shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB. I'm your host, Jack Johnson, alongside Dylan Michaels, and now joined in studio by our good friend Lance Twidwell of the Spoken Podcast. Perfect day for Lance to come on with all that's been going on in the NFL, all these new signings. You know, we, we knew this day was going to be important. We knew this day 
was going to be a get-your-popcorn-ready type of deal. Speaking of Terrell Owens and Chad Ochocinco. But, man, it's been a while, Lance. I don't think we had you on after the Super Bowl. I don't think we had in that time period. We've been jumping around between Hollywood Casino, mixing up days. So the scheduling's been a little bit off. But glad to have you in person in studio, because as we always like to say, Lance, it's a lot easier in studio doing interviews. It's back a lot and forth. easier. We can see the face. It's a lot easier. And I was I was going to take the opportunity regardless, Jack. I, and first of all, thank you so much for having me back. Of course. I definitely missed you guys. We have not, and to, to confirm what you said, uh, we have not been on the show together since or before the Super Bowl. Yeah, before, before the Super, Super Bowl, Bowl, yeah. We did have our, uh, our good conversations about what we saw, you know, what we first saw happening in the mm-hmm. Super Bowl. And I. I feel like you and I were pretty correct on what we saw happening, man. And it, I think it, we did. Went, it, went, it went down pretty close to what we imagined. So, uh, But nevertheless, very, very happy to be back here. Dylan, it's great to meet you, man. This is the first time we actually worked together. Uh, looks like he's uh, you're in good hands here, Jack. It just ha- I'm just happy are. to be back with you guys, man. You know, it's one of the reasons, one of the main reasons I wanted to bring you on today is because the big news was Jawan Taylor signing with the Kansas City Chiefs for your deal. That now officially ends the era of Orlando Brown Jr. in Kansas City. He will go make big-time money elsewhere. The Chiefs feel like they can take Jawan Taylor, who was a right tackle in Jacksonville, move him over to left tackle, which I know people have been saying it's the same thing as Orlando Brown Jr. It's not, because Orlando Brown Jr. filled in for Ronnie Staley at left tackle, had at least some experience under his belt, and if I'm not mistaken, played left tackle at Oklahoma. At Florida, Juwan Taylor did not play left tackle. So this will be an adjustment, and we always know that with offensive linemen, it's not as simple as just moving over. It's not like in basketball, moving a point guard to shooting guard. Like, you got different footwork. It's a different angle. You're taking on different edge rushers. And so you're one of the people that was vocal about bringing Orlando Brown Jr. back, and he played fantastically down the stretch of the season, was great in the Super Bowl. You can say it was the field. They had to play on the exact same field. So people were slipping around, but still. I thought Orlando Brown Jr., they got the most out of him in two years. But now you have more of a project to work on. Juwan Taylor is a great right tackle, but it's right tackle. So I wanted to give you the floor here and say, you know, maybe your opinions as to why you're for this move or why you're against this move. Well, first and foremost, let me just make it official. I am in no way against this move. Mm -hmm. Biggest reason why is because I also see the potential and what the Chiefs obviously see in Juwan Taylor. We know that this guy in this league is a very, very talented and very good right tackle. That is not debatable. I, I know everyone is so fixated on the pressure rate. Mm-hmm. He had a 2.5% pressure rate, which is about 4% better than what Orlando Brown Jr.'s was at left tackle. So I'm not going to sit here and try to downplay the potential of this, of this move. The question I have is the question I think everyone either already does have but maybe doesn't want to admit it, or is a question they don't really think they do have deep down, is do we know what he is as a left tackle? Mm -hmm. Because you just addressed it right then and there. At every important level to this point of his football career, he has not played left tackle. Now, we, we listened to a guy that actually covers the Jaguars earlier today. I was listening to him talk, and he said that of the 4,300, 4,311 snaps and Jawan Taylor's career in the NFL. Only 15 of those were at left tackle. Now, during the span he's been in the league since 2019, mm-hmm. Cam Robinson, their left tackle in that, that same time span, has missed eight games. Mm-hmm. So if Jawan Taylor was viewed as a guy that can play the left tackle in Jacksonville, he would have played more than 15 snaps. So that's a concern I had. This is a concern everybody should have because the Chiefs just gave him $60 million guaranteed. Now, there are speculati- speculations out there that the Chiefs are still in on Laramie Tunsil. But my problem with that is what I said before this Juwan Taylor news came out. 
are the Chiefs going to be willing to give up three to five picks mm. and give $100 million plus to Laramie Tonsil? Because that's what's going to cost. That's the low end. So I don't think that's going to happen now. I think that you're looking at the new left tackle for the Chiefs, and the Chiefs probably draft or sign a veteran guy that's a middling player out there as their new right tackle for the foreseeable future. So Jawan Taylor now has to be looked at as a left tackle. And there is he is an unknown and unproven commodity at that position. If we're talking about him coming in here as a right tackle, I'm not sitting here saying these things. I'm sitting mm. here talking. I'm, I'm going to try. My, my chunky butt is going to try to do a backflip <laughs> in the studio right now if he was our right tackle. But that's not the situation. Situation we're talking about. So we have to have an honest conversation about what he is. And all we can say with any with any definitivity is is the fact we don't know. And that is what I am concerned about. Do I trust Brett Veach? Yes. Mm-hmm. The man has been crushing it in the draft alone for the last three straight years. Has he went out there and got quality guys through trades and in free agency? Yes. I appreciate what he is. There is not a single GM I would rather have running the Chiefs than Brett Veach. That doesn't mean that we can't sit here and wonder or speculate or have at least a conversation about said moves and, and, and try to understand it and process it. That is where I'm at, and I feel that I have that right because we had the same conversation, as you just said, when the Chiefs traded for Orlando Brown. But at least we knew what he looked like as a left yep. tackle, and we knew that he at least had potential. So it was a little bit more comfortability there of understanding what we were getting in return. So... And, and we can't sit here and say the Chiefs didn't want Orlando Brown either. Because they offered yeah. him $120-plus million twice. Yeah. It came down to the guaranteed dollars. So I, I, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt here, Jack. But I can't sit here and tell you that the Chiefs upgraded at left tackle because how in the world can we say that yet? Yeah, I, I think right now the biggest knock on a guy like Jawan Taylor, who was a great right tackle for Jacksonville. I know PFF didn't really love Jawan Taylor, but there's guys that are for PFF, guys that are against PFF. A lot of guys go by eye tests, guys go by pressure rate, go by sacks, holding penalties, stuff like that. And I do see the reason that you're pointing out of, hey, it's not so much that you're against the move, it's I just don't know what he's going to be like at left tackle because even though Orlando Brown Jr. was more of a project at left tackle because he was majority or majority of the time a right tackle in Baltimore, he had at least had some time there. Now with Juwan Taylor, he could make a better adjustment. It was more of a passing offense in Jacksonville than it was a rushing offense in Baltimore. So maybe it's a simpler adjustment, moving from right tackle to left tackle. But yeah, that would be a concern of just 15 snaps there. And Cam Robinson was there. If Juwan Taylor was head and shoulders above him, he would have played left tackle or if he was a guy that they could work with in a project because Jacksonville wasn't very good until this year. At the same time, I like how you bring it up. You know, Brett Veach has done a great job in the draft. That doesn't mean you have to fall in love with every single move. You don't have to praise every single move. You can have your critiques of it. You can have your criticisms of it. And I think your points are fair with just saying, hey, I'm not against it. I just don't know what he's going to be like. And when you let or Andrew Wiley walk away, now there is a great possibility. Hell, there is the only possibility you're going to have a new left tackle and a new right tackle, two of the most important positions on the offensive line. You're solidified inside. You have Trey Smith. You have Creed Humphrey. You have Joe Tooney. Maybe not paying Orlando Brown Jr. the big bucks allows you to be flexible down the road of keeping Creed Humphrey around and keeping Trey Smith around when the rookie deals are up. Now, you said for the right tackle spot, you maybe go through getting a one-year deal, a veteran guy. Maybe you put your faith in Lucas Niang. Maybe Darian Kennard bumps outside. You give him a full offseason telling him he's the right tackle. What are the chances, though, Lance, the Chiefs would then trade up in the first round not to give themselves a left tackle? to get themselves a right tackle. That would be a very uh, unexpected situation, just like it was unexpected last year when they traded up several spots to get Trey mm-hmm. Duffy a cornerback, when we knew that Brett Veach, to that point, didn't really value that position 
uh, early in the draft and in, in, in overspending in free agency or in trades. So uh, it would definitely shock me if that happened. I don't. I don't think that's going to be the case. I do think that they're going to give every opportunity in the world for a guy that's in house to win that job. I know this team is very big on Lucas Niang. The problem with him, and I'm an, I'm I'm the I'm the founder of the Niang gang. Man, I love that guy coming out. Uh, we heard Chase Young talk about that was the toughest tackle he ever faced in college. I love the sound of that. Um, the problem is the guy just can't stay healthy. Yeah. I'm big on Darian Kennard. I think this kid is was a stud in college. I think he has the opportunity to play guard slash tackle. He can play pretty much any position. He was on a show with Jason Dunn, former Chiefs uh, uh, tight end, uh, the Chief Concerned Podcast, good friends of mine, and he was on the show earlier last year talking about how the Chiefs told him that you're in the long, you're in the the big picture yeah. uh, future plans with us. So you're gonna be you're gonna get your opportunities. So I I do think the Chiefs are gonna give a young guy an opportunity there because we have to remember when it comes comes to Andrew. Wiley. He ain't young anymore. He's, you know, 28 years old. But this man was an undrafted free agent. I think he signed with the Colts or somebody like that mm-hmm. back in the day in like 2016, 2017 and ended up in became was started as a guard and then ended up becoming a swing tackle and then the starting right tackle for the Super Bowl champion Chiefs. So, we've seen stories like this emerge all the time. So, that's it, it could very well be a guy that we have no clue about. I mean, let's be honest. Most most Chiefs fans didn't even know Juwan Taylor was Ten hours ago, yeah. So there's un, there's there's unknown commodities out there that can emerge. So I'm I'm giving that platform an opportunity for that to to take place. But I I do want to say something. One more thing about Orlando Brown because I'm sure that there's gonna be other things we're gonna discuss. Because I know I'm known as a guy that defends Orlando Brown Jr. Mm-hmm. The defense I have for Orlando Brown is this: I know how much he mattered to the Chiefs because the Chiefs went out there and tried to spend a ton of money on Trent Williams. The Niners outbid, and the Chiefs are like, all right, that's too rich for us. We're just going to try to go with our plan B. Their plan B was Orlando Brown. The Ravens were willing to trade him. The Chiefs gave up valuable commodities. Now ended up getting Nick Bolton out of that second-round pick they got back. Mm-hmm. I think it was the 58th overall pick. But the fact remains is that Orlando Brown was the, the ultimate trading block in that entire transaction. He comes in here going from right tackle in a run-heavy offense to the left tackle in a, and basically the most air-rated offense in the yeah. entire league. You saw the, you saw the growing pains. I never debated that. I never turned that down. I never tried to pretend like the guy was perfect or was Trent Williams. Yeah. The fact that I always got, went with is I saw the growth. I saw the fact this guy from year one to year two, you saw the strides. And the thing that I always give a player credit for and why I will buy into you and why I will always defend you is if in the biggest games and the biggest moments you show up, I'm going to give you that credit. You saw Orlando Brown in the biggest game of his life against a defense that had the second most sacks in the history of the NFL, but I I believe behind the 85 Bears, shut them down. He played an absolute key role in the Chiefs winning that game. I understand people talk about, well, he gave up the pressure that got Patrick Mahomes injured against the Jaguars. If you watch that play, Jack, go watch that play. He circled all the way around. Thank you. Mm -hmm. First of all, the play went for four seconds. Mm -hmm. That's an eternity for a a play in a game in the NFL. Second of all, like you just said, Arden Key goes all the way around the pocket, and then Patrick Mahomes is scrambling trying to hit Noah Gray on that that four-yard play and gets hit. That is not on Orlando Brown Jr. So I don't want people to be using that against Orlando Brown to justify their vitriol and hate for this guy. This guy did his job in Kansas City. I agree with you. He's not going to be back. He's going to go get himself paid. He's going to make some money. He's going to probably make himself the second highest paid left tackle in football. 
I was for the Chiefs doing that because, to me, he was a sure thing. I saw him growing. I saw offensive linemen evolve and develop, and I saw him ascending. And we know the Chiefs are on the—they like ascending players, which is why I was confident he would stay in Kansas City. I did not foresee this happening today. But yeah. if this—again, not, not to repeat myself, but if Jawan Taylor is a guy that Chiefs look at and view as a cheaper option, a younger option, and a better option, I'll roll with it. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to have my concerns. We're talking with Lance Twidwell of the Spoken Podcast, going over the move of the Chiefs today, bringing in Jawan Taylor on a four-year deal to be the team's new left tackle. Right tackle, jury's still out. I'm not sure it'll be Kennard, Lucas Niang, they go out and sign somebody, or they go through the draft. To your point, though, with Orlando Brown Jr. likely going out now, still seeking his agent, seeking him to be the second-highest paid left tackle in football. Now, from my point of view, when I look at a guy like Trent Williams, highest-paid left tackle in football, I think he is a far superior left tackle to Orlando Brown Jr. I think I test, I think PFF, advanced data, anything you want to say. Trent Williams is the best left tackle in football. The 49ers aren't shedding any tears, even if he's not playing all 17 games. He is the best left tackle in football. I think a guy like Laramie Tunzel is a top three left tackle in football. I think, to your point, Orlando Brown Jr. was a good left tackle, and I think when you look back at this trade, it was a good trade for the Chiefs because what happened? They got a Super Bowl out of it. That's why they went out and got Orlando Brown Jr., so a Super Bowl debacle where the offensive line was ravaged wouldn't happen again. You were solid on the left side of the line. At the same time, I don't think I'm ever going to look back and say, man, I regret them not paying Orlando Brown Jr. the big-time money. Now, it also depends on how Jawan Taylor plays. If Jawan Taylor turns into a bottom five tackle in this league and is just bowled over every single week and Patrick Mahomes has sacked more than any other quarterback in the entire NFL, then I'm going, hmm, maybe that money might have been worth it. But I'm just speaking, I'm not looking into a you know crystal ball, not just being bold with this pick. I think four or five years down the line, we're not going to look back and go, they screwed up letting him walk. Because being the second highest paid left tackle in football, not sure he's worth that money. He is a sure thing. You know what you're getting out of Orlando Brown Jr., which is why I said on ESPN Wichita, I said on 1510 ESPN Kansas City, if it came out that they extended him, I'm not throwing my arms at the mirror and going, why the hell would you do that? I'd be okay because I know who's at left tackle. I'm not having to wonder who that left tackle is going to be. I just wanted that plan to be fixed if they chose to let him walk away, which it was clear. Monday happened. Orlando Brown Jr. had a chance to negotiate with other teams. They already had their left tackle in place. So it was very quick on what they were going to do when that match couldn't be made for how much money Orlando Brown Jr. was asking for. But I'm just simply saying that I think Orlando Brown Jr., for what he's asking for, hey, you might as well ask for the highest amount you think you're worth. And like you said, if the Chiefs wanted to offer him that, it came down to guaranteed money. He wanted to have more stability there. I just think when it's all said and done, five, six years from now, People will look back, go, you had two years of Orlando Brown Jr. You won a Super Bowl. You didn't give up the entire bank in draft picks to get him. You got him. Left tackle spot was solidified. He was good enough. They won a Super Bowl. You let him walk. Let's say a team like the Bears, you know, empties the bank, makes him the second highest paid left tackle in football. Not sure he makes the Bears the best offense in football. Not sure they're going to be the most protected team in football. And you look at Kansas City and go, as long as Jawan Taylor does as good of a job as Orlando Brown Jr., this will be a fine move. This will be fine 
not giving him the big-time money and letting him walk. 100%, Jack. That's why, again, I make it very clear and obvious that even though I'm a defender of what Orlando Brown Jr. was here in Kansas City, I am more than open-minded to Juwan Taylor being an upgrade. Mm-hmm. I am more than open-minded. If he does it, then Brett Veach crushed this. Because if, yep. if you look at that contract structure, the 18.9, I think, in mm-hmm. signing bonus, I think he's $6 million against the cap this year. Yeah. Like, it's a genius contract. But at the end of the day, it's only as good as his performance on the field and I need to see because we have to understand here something Jack how important the left tackle position in general is the second most important position on a mm-hmm. football roster correct absolutely okay how much more of an emphasis and importance of it is in Kansas City with Patrick Mahomes yeah we have to understand that Patrick Mahomes has had some really good tackles in his career and in, in, in his early NFL career Mitchell Schwartz to the right for the majority of it and then Eric Fisher and then Orlando Brown Jr. and Willie uh, Andrew Wiley really stepped his game up this last season that's why he got paid my point though is is that we have to make sure and this is why again i give brett veach the benefit of the doubt but i still need to see it backed up i want to know for sure that this guy is going to protect patrick not not only not only when he plays but making sure he's available all the time now i know he has not missed a game in his career Mm. but now he's the man yeah. Like he he's the guy. Like the, the left tackle yeah. is what puts an offensive line together. If your offensive line or if your left tackle is shaken, your offensive line it doesn't matter what you have around him. Mm-hmm. It really doesn't. Having Joe Tooney there is going to make things a lot easier. The fact remains that you saw in 2020 when the, when Eric Fisher tore his Achilles before the Super Bowl, the Chiefs offensive line was shaken all season, but they had lost one true game the entire way through. It didn't matter because they knew their left tackle was solid. Eric Fisher was a good, average, solid left tackle. Yeah. He goes down against the Bills. The Chiefs survived that game, and it was just mayhem in the Super Bowl. Yeah. So you have to make sure, even with Joe Tooney, Creed, Pancake, Papa Smith being there, even with those guys, if this doesn't work, and like you said, he ends up barreling out bottom five, yeah. this is going to be a lot tougher for the Chiefs to get back to where they were, man. It's not going to mm-hmm. be, oh, it's just a foregone conclusion. Patrick Mahomes can overcome that. That's not how the NFL works, even with a, a demigod like him. Yeah, and I, I think when it comes down to it, the most important priority in Kansas City is you got to protect your, your franchise quarterback. No matter what happens, that has to be top priority. You can want weapons. You can want a running game. You can want to make sure you're solid in the back end of your secondary. When you have a franchise quarterback, you need to make sure he's not getting popped over and over and over again. We saw this year with the ankle. It was banged up. And what was so important in the Super Bowl is it kept them clean for the most part. Now in the NFL films, he had that one play where he got twisted up and he's, he's yelling. But that's going to happen when you're scrambling, you leave the pocket, stuff like that. But I wonder, Lance, if Brett Veach made this move. Because you look around in Cincinnati, you look around in Buffalo, those teams at times in free agency, they show desperation. They overpay and they go, we got to get dudes here now because we don't have a Super Bowl ring. The Chiefs have two in four years. And it's not that you take a step back and go, hey, it's fine now if we lose for three years. But the pressure comes off a little bit. And when a guy is maybe putting you in a corner and going, no, I want this money and you're going to give me this money. They don't back down. Tyreek Hill did the exact same thing. He said, I want to be this. I want to be worth this much. I want to get this much money. And the Chiefs said, sorry, no, we're going to trade you. We're not going to pay you that. We're going to get better though ourselves. They want a Super Bowl out of it. And I think with this move, though it's a project, maybe it's Brett Veach going, the best part about our franchise right now, we're really good, but we're also, what, a sixth or seventh youngest team in the NFL? It's about continuing to keep that window open, and these moves have shown under Brett Veach, they pay off more likely than not. There's going to be the growing pains. I'm not saying Juwan Taylor's going to go out there and be Trent Williams week one through five. Yeah. There's going to be some ugly games. That's just a part of it. What is he, 24 years old? Yeah. His 15 snaps in the NFL at the left tackle position, played right tackle at Florida in college. There's going to be growing pains. 
But do you think Brett Veach made this move in going, okay, if we pay Orlando Brown Jr. now, we know that left tackle spot's going to be locked up for the next five to six years. But maybe we can be cheaper, keep that window open just a little bit longer. I think these are what these moves have been made through the draft, through these free agent pickups. They're just keeping the window open an extra year longer, an extra year longer. And now, if Taylor works out, you got a more cost-efficient guy, he's young, he's 24, and you're locked up for four years. Like I think Brett Veach made this move because the Chiefs, let's simply put it, they're not in desperation mode. They just won a Super Bowl. Don't be on your heels now. Don't be backpedaling and say, well, it's okay now to be average. We can be a three-seed, a four-seed. No, they're still trying to win the Super Bowl every single year, but you're not feeling that heat, that pressure from your fan base and going, you got to go empty the bank now. The Chargers have that heat. The Bills have that heat. Cincinnati has that heat. Baltimore's got that heat. Even Jacksonville maybe has got that heat of going, you got there, now you got to keep paying. Now you got to keep being competitive. And the Chiefs with a franchise quarterback have the luxury of making moves like this. So do you think this move of going more so of a project than maybe overpaying for Lander Brown Jr. was because the Chiefs are not in desperation mode right now. Yes, it has everything to do with that. And also, I think that Brett Veach views himself in a very high regard, which is totally, I actually love that about him. I think he knows what he's capable of. I think he's learning that. He's. I was talking to Dylan before the show. I mean, you got to remember, Brett Veach is in his early 40s. This guy is yeah. still evolving into the great GM that he is. And I think Brett Veach, with this move, basically told us that he believes he's better at his job than Orlando Brown Jr. is better at his because he has faith in what he can go and find that could be a potential upgrade at a more more marketable price. If you look at the Chiefs roster as it currently is constructed, there are 22 guys on their rookie deal. This is a very young team and a very cheap team. Mm -hmm. And the beautiful thing about what Brad Veach does is he finds this revolving or this uh, rotation or this revolving door at certain positions like cornerback and wide receiver. You can get away with that, but you better make sure that you find you solidify if you're going to do that at a lower degree or a lower grade at the left tackle and guard and center positions you better nail it because in the draft he nailed it with Trey Smith he nailed it with Creed Humphrey and mm-hmm. free agency he went and signed every, I remember when they signed Joe Tooney people thought that was a ridiculous contract Joe Tooney since then has been arguably the best guard, not just left guard, guard in football. Yep. One of the best. He's been an elite guard in this league. Mm-hmm. Even swung over and played left tackle and gave Chiefs this idea that he should be a left tackle for a long period of time, which is ridiculous. The point remains, Brett Veach is telling us with this move, I got you guys. I'm good with that. I'm telling you guys, though, that I was on the side that I thought the Chiefs are going to pay Orlando Brown because of what they traded to go and get him and what he did for them. But now I understand that it's even more clear and evident that Brett Veach believes in his capabilities to replace Orlando Brown at a cheaper, more marketable price and potentially even upgrade. I'm open-minded to do it, just like I was open-minded to the idea of trading for Laramie Tunsil. Mm-hmm. But as I told Chiefs fans on Twitter, and I'll say it again and again, if you guys thought that Orlando Brown was going to be expensive, even if Laramie Tunsil is better, which he is, and he's only about a year and a half, two years older. Yeah. Even with that, if you think that Orlando was going to be expensive, imagine what you would have to give up to get Tunsil, and imagine what you'd have to pay him for the next five seasons. So this move, and it's, and it's, and and the best case scenario is the best case scenario for the Chiefs. Yeah. Because like I said, it's only six, it's sixty million guarantee, which is not cheap. But you're only paying him for the next three seasons. You can get out of that deal by the time this man's twenty eight years old. Mm-hmm. Tunsil, you have to give him a five year deal, and probably three or four. That's going to be guaranteed, and it's be substantially more. So I like this idea. If in fact it works, I just want to see that Brett Veach is going to nail it here. Because if he does, Patrick Mahomes, it, it almost it almost doesn't matter who he's throwing to. 
He can, he's going to have all month to throw it to them <laughs> because yeah. if, he, if he has that type of protection, because we, we do know one thing that that uh, that uh, Taylor does grade really well at it is pass protection. Mm-hmm. That is something that Brown wasn't as good at. He was really good in the run protection. We yeah. do know that based on grades, but this is something that Taylor is great at. And if the Chiefs say, "Hey, look, we can swing him to the left side. Him and Tooney can work in unison, and we are going to get better at the left side of our offensive line." This is going to improve our chances, and to your point, is going to extend our opportunities to win for the. The next three to five seasons, how in the hell could I be against that? That is the that is that is everything you want in your franchise. Because as we talk about, Patrick Mahomes is just not to enter his prime years. Yeah. If this roster continues to prove for the next three to five seasons simultaneous with Patrick improving as an individual, you're talking about a true dynasty that even some of us didn't foresee in the beginning. Because a lot of us expected, oh, Patrick Mahomes is win MVP his first season as a starter. Well, this team's probably going to win a couple Super Bowls. Yeah. But now five years into it, this roster continues to get better and cheaper, and Brett Veach is starting to find his rhythm in the draft and in free agency and trades. If these all start to hit on a more consistent basis, this team is going to be the next Patriots-esque dynasty, and that won't be hyperbolic to say because the results will be there. Mm. I'm just somebody that wants to sit here and make sure that's how it goes, and I will analyze that accordingly. And if Brett Veach kills it, you better believe I'll be the first in the line to congratulate him on doing so. So, but that with that problem though, we're gonna have the issue of now it's gonna be hard to re-sign Creed, Trey, keep Joe if we want to sign either one of those guys. If we have to go out and find a left tackle now or a right tackle. Because we still need a tackle. We still yeah. need someone else on the roster to play whichever side Jawan's not playing. So that that's the other problem. I guess it's a good problem to have with the you know great roster construction that Brett Veach is doing. Is we're gonna have issues keeping all this together if we keep paying. You know, like if we have to go out and get another person like Tunzel right now. Yeah. You know that'll be tough to keep those interior guys. I think when you look at when you build a great franchise like this when you have won multiple Super Bowls in less than five years you obviously have a lot of talent on both sides of the ball you have superstars Mahomes superstar Kelsey superstar Chris Jones superstar you want to thank Creed Humphrey being the best center in the AFC you want to have the debate that Jason Kelsey is the best in the NFC I can hear you out a little bit but you have superstars and every superstar franchise that has a lot of them you got to pick and choose yeah. who you really want to keep around. You can't run it like Madden. You can't run just pay everybody, you know, turn the sliders on, the no salary cap on, and keep <laughs> That'd be everybody out. It? It'd be awesome because the Chiefs would, would be the top team in the AFC every single year. The thing is, though, you have to make these tough decisions. And sometimes in dynasties or the dynasties in the making, they fall apart because teams pick the wrong guys. Yeah. Seattle was a dynasty in the making. They picked the wrong guys, and it fell apart. Yeah. They, they let a lot of guys walk. Guys became unhappy. Let the defense and, walk. Yeah, they let, yeah. They let yeah. their yeah. biggest identity, the Legion of Boom, walk. But in Kansas City, I think by far and away, you got to keep your quarterback happy first. As long as quarterback's happy, guys are going to fill around him and go, I can be happy and being healthy. here. And, and healthy. healthy. Yeah. yeah, he's going, I'm happy here. I asked for this guy in the draft. I get this guy. The defense is good enough. And right now, the biggest superstar, not only on the Chiefs, but in the NFL, is Chris Jones. And he wants to be a chief for life, he said on Twitter. Now, I think negotiating tactics, that probably wasn't great on his side because the Chiefs <laughs> will go and go, hell, he already said he's a chief for life. We don't have to break bank for and him. It didn't help that he said he only he only wants to be at least the second highest paid player yes. in this position. <laughs> so he didn't really do himself any favors market-wise. No. But maybe that's a good thing, obviously, because yeah. he just wants to win a lot of Super Bowls. Travis Kelsey did the same thing. Yeah. He wasn't worried too much about money. But it still brings the part you got to pick and choose. And you're going to have to let some guys walk. And I think two years ago, if we would have been talking about trading Tyreek Hill... Everybody would call us insane because Tyreek Hill was never mentioned of being a guy that was on his way out until he was. Yeah. And the Chiefs decided, 
We're going to favor Travis Kelsey and Chris Jones and Patrick Mahomes over you. So bye-bye. Don't let the door hit you on your way out. And I think in the case of right now, they made that decision with Orlando Brown Jr. When they traded him, maybe the idea was, yeah, he's the left tackle for the next five to six years. He's 24 years old, made a Pro Bowl in every single year. And here's the thing. Brett Veach loves tackles that are durable because that didn't happen in the 2022 Super Bowl year. They had guys that were banged up. Eric Fisher got hurt. Mitchell Schwartz got hurt. And every time they make those trades or those signings, look at their numbers. Joe Tooney had not missed many games in New England, if any, if I'm not mistaken. Orlando Brown Jr. didn't miss a lot of games. Jawan Taylor hasn't missed a game in his NFL career. There's consistency to that. And I think when they looked at Orlando Brown Jr., they said, if we are going to replace him, we want to make sure we're doing it for the right or we want to do it for the right reasons. And maybe right now the top of the priority list is keeping Chris Jones here. I know there was, you know, thoughts last year if you trade Tyree Kill, maybe you trade Chris Jones. I don't think the haul will be as much for Jones as it was for Tyree Kill because he's a nose tackle, one of the best in his position next to Aaron Donald. But still, maybe the Chiefs were indicating here, letting Orlando Brown Jr. walk, that we are picking Chris Jones over you because hey, he's a star. We got to pay him star money, and maybe you're not the star that we envision you as, or maybe that you see yourself as. Yeah, when Tyreek Hill got traded, a lot of people thought the the assumption was that was them picking Orlando Brown Jr. over him. But actually, what it looks like now is that actually might have been Chris Jones they were mm-hmm. picking over Tyreek Hill and Orlando Brown Jr. Yeah. in the grand scheme of things. And actually, this is something that I I take seriously because Chris Jones is at the perfect age for the Chiefs to say, okay. This is the fork in the road. Are we going to extend him for the next three to four seasons, or are we going to trade him at his at his absolute apex? Because Chris Jones had his best season of his career this season. I, outside of 2018, I think this was just as good, if not better, of a season. Yeah. Uh, especially with how much was on him, with all these young guys around him, and guys that were just middling players. How much more was on him? I thought that was incredible for what he did. Uh, I, I, I'm fully, I'm fully confident the Chiefs are going to pay Chris Jones and extend him because of the fact that. I think it's a lot much more of a headache for the Chiefs to move off of Chris Jones in two different ways. One, you're, there's nothing you're going to do in this draft that's going to replace Chris Jones and what no. he brings on it. And from just an individual standpoint, not in there's agency, nothing, not in the draft. Nothing. Not there's the nothing they can do. I, I will say that, and I will die on that hill if I'm wrong. I don't care. I will hold the L, but that's fine. So that, that answers that problem right now for the foreseeable future. Also, the fact that extending him is going to give the Chiefs anywhere from 18 to $20 million in cap space. And we know right now I think the Chiefs are sitting around $6 million. They open that up, then all of a sudden we're talking about the Chiefs being able to go and make even more moves, which I do believe are coming in the, in the very near future. Yeah. And we can talk about that if we have time. But the point I'm trying to make is you're 100% right into Dylan's question about how are they going to be able to do this, how are they going to be able to hold on to this, this is exactly what we've been talking about. The, the changing of the dynamics with, with what's happened here in Kansas City, the winning culture comes with the price. And it isn't just financial. It's the fan favorites. Frank Clark is beloved in Kansas City. Everybody wanted Frank Clark to stay. But he was too expensive and too unreliable in in the regular season. You can't justify keeping him on the contract he was about to have. And if you let him go, you're getting $21 million in cap relief. So it ha- it was a good business decision. Was it popular? Was it uncomfortable? All those things. Yeah, you can answer those questions. The fact remains, what is a good business move and what helps the Chiefs win for the next three to five seasons? That's what the Chiefs are looking at. It didn't. It wasn't like this when we were kids. You know, no, in the Dick Vermeil era, you know, in the, in the Herm Edwards era, it was more about keeping names and keeping the fans interested. That's what I remember. Well, the Chiefs are now in the Super Bowl winning business. It's not about filling the seats. That comes with winning. So they're not mm. worried about that. They're worried about making sure they're putting the best product out there to win Super Bowls because they know, even though Patrick Mahomes is in no way, shape, or form old or going anywhere, 
They only have so many years to make this work with him. So this is the time to make it happen now. And this young roster that Brett Veach has built them, even if they don't make any other moves this, the rest of this regular or, uh, offseason and then go into the draft the way this team is currently constructed, they are without question the prohibitive favorites to represent the AFC again because as you addressed earlier with the Bengals and Bills and Chargers having to strip their rosters because their quarterbacks are already expensive or are about to be hell of expensive, the Chiefs are sitting here with this young nucleus around Patrick Mahomes' now team-friendly deal, which is probably going to be the high, the ninth-highest-paid quarterback in the league by the end of next season. They're yep. sitting pretty, man. So at this point, it's house money. That doesn't mean, though, that we can't sit here and have the discussions we're having about this because that's what makes it fun, to be honest with you. This makes it fun because now we can sit here and say, holy crap, man, did the Chiefs actually upgrade at left tackle and saved money? If they actually did that, we're sitting here praising Brett Veach, but it's got to work out that way, man. Otherwise, this could potentially be a year wasted in Patrick Mahomes' prime years, man. We're talking with Lance Twidwell of the Spoken Podcast, talking everything Chiefs right now, the left tackle position. Of course, the Chiefs going out and making some moves today, bringing in Jawan Taylor on a four-year deal, the right tackle of the Jaguars, to assumingly be the next left tackle, the Chiefs letting Orlando Brown Jr. walk and get the bag somewhere else. Let's stick in the AFC West here because the Broncos were very active today. They That's added their what offensive I was gonna, line. Uh, ask you was who oh. was your guys' pick for the offseason Super Bowl between the Falcons and the Broncos? Are you going which which <laughs> side are you going for March Super Bowl? Yeah, I, I think I think the, I think the media would tell you it's got to be Denver because <laughs> they add Ben Powers and they add Mike McGlinchey to the offensive line. We know Sean Payton, as we we're talking about on the break, loves his offensive guards. They want protection for Russell Wilson, and, and hey, I think Russell Wilson, you know, it was a disaster year one. I, I'm not going to completely rule it out that he can't be better. Hell, it can't be much worse <laughs> than he was in year one. But, you know, with Sean Payton, I think so far, we want to give the Denver Broncos a lot of heat being here in Kansas City, but I do think today, even if they had to overpay a little bit, you have Garrett Bowles on the left side, probably bringing in, bringing in Ben Powers from Baltimore means the end for Dalton Reisner, who is from Kansas State. You bring in Mike McGlinchey, you do have to pay him a lot of money. He's 28 years old, but at least the right side is locked down. It's interesting, though, to both of you, to, I want to ask you guys both these questions here, is I think it's interesting because last year we saw this arms race in the AFC West. The Chargers get Khalil Mack. They get J.C. Jackson. They bring back Mike Williams. Denver breaks big to get Russell Wilson. They go out and try to add and add and add. The Raiders get a number one target in Devontae Adams. So you have all these teams in your own division that are going in an arms race. I mean, hair on fire, getting arguably the best players at their position at that time that were available in free agency or available via trade. Now it's different. Now I'm going to not count Jimmy G going to the Raiders. We're going <laughs> to stick with Denver here. But Denver's going a little bit different now. And maybe it's Sean Payton's influence. They're not trying to go out there and bring in the top receiver or trade for a top edge rusher. They're starting with the boring moves, the offensive line. And the offensive line is always considered to be the quote-unquote boring moves. In Kansas City, it was different because after the Super Bowl, everybody was all on board for the Joe Tooney signing, for the Orlando Brown Jr. trade, the Creed Humphrey draft pick, the Trey Smith draft pick. All those picks they were loved because Kansas City saw how bad it got in the Super Bowl. Denver is, I think, going about it in the right way a little bit. They are spending a lot of money. But maybe this is the way to do it because Ben Powers is a good guard. Yeah. Mike McGlinchey is a good right tackle. Even if you overpay a little bit, I feel like that's where you have to start. Denver's defense was good last year. Their offense was terrible. But maybe the way to fix the offense is starting where you didn't get much protection. Maybe it wasn't that you didn't have the top weapon. You know, Cortland Sutton was there. You know, you had Jerry Judy. 
You did trade away Albert O, but you went through the draft and got a tight end to bring in there. I think it was Greg Dolchik that you had. The running game was non-existent after Javante Williams went down. But maybe this is the right way to go about it and trying to be competitive with the Chiefs is it's not always about the sexy signings, the big-name receivers, the big-name edge rusher, the big-name cornerback. Maybe it's starting here. You get Sean Payton, you get your right side of the offensive line solidified a little bit. I mean, am I wrong in saying that? Well, here's the thing, Jack. I don't really know if the Broncos had another choice. They don't have draft capital. Yeah. So they really can't build their team organically like the Chiefs have been able to do. Mm-hmm. I think if they had that choice, I think if the if the Broncos had like 8 to 10 picks in this draft and then 8 to 10 picks next year, you would see Sean Payton building his team organically because he is somebody we got to give him credit. Back with the Saints, man, they drafted very well on both sides good. of the ball. So I think that's actually what Sean Payton wants to do. So that, I, I definitely think he's – this is a desperation he because Sean Payton doesn't want to waste his time. He's 60 years old now. He isn't trying to come to Denver. He was Denver. brought in for one reason. Exactly. <laughs> he was to win immediately. He was to win immediately because Russell Wilson is 34 years old and his contract doesn't – you can't get out of his contract for at least another three, four seasons. So they're, they're stuck where they're at. Mike McGlinchey, I know he's like the big – Signing right now, Ben Powers as well. But McGlinchey's making about eighteen million a year in this new deal. At least when the Chiefs pay their right tackle eighteen plus million, they move him over to left tackle. You know to justify it. Mm-hmm. But McGlinchey, <laughs> the thing about McGlinchey is this: it's gonna be really interesting to watch him how he adjusts because. Sean Payton's going to have no choice but to try to make Russell Wilson a better quarterback than what he was, and I don't think I don't think that's possible. I think his best years are behind him. I think if there was a coach that could available coach that could have made it as good as possible, it's going to be Sean Payton. I'm still not buying that Russell Wilson's going to take this massive step forward and get better. I do agree with you; it couldn't have been much worse. But they're already shopping all their wide receivers, Cortland Sutton, guys like that that Russell Wilson's familiar with. You're not just going to play pick and pick and play and just have Russell Wilson work with some 22-year-old rookie and expect that to work out because you saw how long it took him to work with Jerry Juzzi. It took him over half the season Mm -hmm. for Jerry Juzzi to be implemented in the offense. And now with Mike McGlinchey being from a run-heavy run-zone offense in San Francisco to now an offense where Sean Payton's going to want to throw the ball because in in Drew Brees' era, they were throwing the ball over 35 times a game. That's not Russell Wilson's game. So what are they going to do? What What is their identity in offense? I have no idea. Is Mike McGlinchey going to be able to adapt if they want to play more air raid? Are they going to go more to run style? That's going to piss Russell Wilson off. And he doesn't have the mobility that he once had. So for me, I'm just looking for what the Broncos' identity is going to be because they're spending big bucks. But are these pieces going to actually fit together? That's the biggest question. I just noticed that it's funny how they the whole Super Bowl talk was about the offense and defensive line of the Eagles, and that is what everyone is running out to yep. spend on today. <laughs> it's, it's just a copycat league. Yeah, like last year it was wide receivers, right? Or was, I can't remember. Was it? What? Yeah, it, was, was, it was. It was a big deal too. Was, Cornerbacks went, went, went pretty big deal. But yep. it went Christian Kirk, Devontae, Then we had to trade. I mean, then those two Tyree trades. Kill, yeah. Yep. So after they realized it's oh, control the line of scrimmage. Shorten the game for the Chiefs, and also if they don't change the rule on that QB sneak, this is also a good way to, mm-hmm. you know, copy that as well. So it just seems like everyone went out and got exactly what they think the Eagles did last year. Yeah, the tough part for the AFC West right now is I think very early on after this first Super Bowl run, the message that every front office was trying to tell their team, or vice versa, the front office or the, the coaches that was telling the front office, they're going, "Here's how you beat Kansas City." You drain the play clock, you run the football, you keep the ball out of Patrick Mahomes' hands. I think that argument can be put to bed because in the Super Bowl, Philly didn't snap the ball until about one or two seconds on the play clock. 
The Chiefs scored what thirty six. The argument though, thirty eight. Yeah. The argument though for that against your because I, I I agree we still win. I'll, but if the holding call doesn't happen, they do get the ball back. They last. do. So they were a bad positioning because I'm not going to say that the ref shouldn't have thrown the flag. He was out of position, mm-hmm. like Shannon Sharp says. Yeah. He affected the game, not the ref. If he's in position and they get that football back, I mean, it's either overtime or they might score. Yeah. And they limited our possessions. They did everything right. They, it kind of turned into a shootout naturally well, and, and anyway. Can we be honest about something also, guys? That game came down to Jalen Hurts' scoop and score uh, fumble. Yeah, it did. It, was, it came down to which quarterback was going to make the mistake. And even though Patrick Mahomes only had the ball for 21 minutes for the entire game, <laughs> in the second half, the man went 13 of 14, and his only incompletion was a throwaway. So... To your point about how it's the copycat lead, you're 100% correct because we saw in 2021 everyone started playing that Tampa Bay style defense, the cover two and making Patrick Holmes beat you below. It took him some time, but he adjusted. So you know what? Challenge accepted. I want to see teams start to do that where they try to bleed the clock. I th- Honestly, I think they've been trying to do that for four or five years. Mm-hmm. It's just not that easy. And when the Chiefs continue to build a, a reputable defense like they did, I think they're only 16th overall this season, a very average defense, but it was a defense that could get to the quarterback. When you saw an opportunistic defense like them make plays like Nick Bolton did, it puts that much more pressure on the other team where it's not just about bleeding clock. you got to score touchdowns. Yeah. So that's the difference. Unless you have an offensive line like the Eagles with a, a quarterback as talented as Jalen Hurts, it's not going to usually work, and it still didn't work for them. So good luck trying to build a team that's going to be good enough to, to make that game plan work on a consistent basis. I just don't see it being formidable in the league because if you look at the rest of the quarterbacks that are close to Patrick Mahomes, and there's not really any of them, but any of the guys that are currently close, like I was talking about just a few minutes ago, their rosters are going backwards. They're not exactly being able to build greater mm. rosters to compete with the Chiefs. Right now, they have to hope the next two or three drafts they can get back to that place because their cap structures aren't the way they want them to be overall. It's a nightmare scenario for the rest of the AFC, and there's damn good teams in the AFC. Hell, the Bengals, until the AFC title game, had the Chiefs number. They were the only team to time and time and again give a perfect blueprint on how to beat Kansas City. The problem is that teams always get mixed up in is you look at Cincinnati. Like Cincinnati had an elite type of team. And when you look at the AFC West, and you almost kind of chuckle every single year because they're trying to build the roster like the Chiefs or like the Bengals or like the Bills. You can't do it unless you have those players. Like Denver, if the message is bleed the clock, right? It's not just bleeding the clock against Kansas City. You have to play so unbelievably perfect for four quarters, you can't have any slip-ups. Like, even Kansas City can afford some slip-ups. The Super Bowl. Butker misses a chip shot early on in the first half. They score 14 points in the first half. They're down 10 at half. They just gifted you a first half, and yet you still have to be as perfect as you were in the first half in the second half, and I think that is the most baffling thing to the rest of the NFLs. They're going, it's nearly impossible to play a perfect four quarters. Hell, the Chiefs don't even play a perfect four quarters. They just have a different quarterback, a different coach, a different scheme, a different structure, and it's like you look at Denver, and they're making moves that to the rest of the NFL, they're good moves. Yeah. You know, I think the Raiders made great moves last year. The Chargers had the best offseason of anybody last year. Those are good moves. The problem is they're just playing the Chiefs at the absolute wrong era right now because the Chiefs are this team that has seemingly become unbeatable to a sense. That they're going to have their times where they slip up. Hell, they weren't perfect this year. But it's always in the back of your mind of knowing – it's not just one thing on how to beat him. It's not just, you know, rushing three, dropping eight. It's not just that. It's also having 
a three-headed monster in T. Higgins, Tyler Boyd, and Jamar Chase. Like, Jack, I mean, think about it. If, if I, I hate playing the what-if game, yeah. but the what-ifs in all of this is the Chiefs beating themselves a lot of times. D. Ford doesn't do the lining up off offsides, and, you're not, and, and Patrick Mahomes having absolute meltdown the second half of the Bengals. The Chiefs are in five consecutive Super Bowls. Yes. Like, think about it. So when you talk about the unbeatable aspect to all this, you're right. These teams have been putting in all the effort, all the money. I mean, what was it? The the AFC last year put in over half a billion dollars towards their salary structures to try and beat the Chiefs. The Chiefs went the opposite direction, got younger, lost superstar talent, and still won. In, like, this last season was supposed to be the 2012 Ravens. You know, when Peyton Manning and Tom Brady were alternating who was representing the AFC, and then he had Joe Flacco right in the middle of it. That was supposed to be Josh Allen's year. That was supposed to be the year that Joe Burrow made it right and, got, and actually won the Super Bowl. This was supposed to be that year for those guys. It didn't work out. So now with the Chiefs only getting better and even tougher to beat, Patrick Mahomes getting even better as a quarterback, I just I hate to sound like an arrogant Chiefs fan here, but I feel like we have <laughs> the justification in doing so. This team's only going to be better. So unless there's injuries or Andy Reid decides to retire out of the blue – you're going to have to make a case to me, a legitimate case as to why the Chiefs should not be the favorites to win the next couple of Super Bowls. I know things change quickly. I get it. And maybe one of these teams finally put it together correctly. We're still talking about the outlier. We're not talking about the next team that's going to overtake what the Chiefs are doing for the next three to five. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, uh, I think it's a it's a situation right now for the rest of the NFL. It was the worst thing for everybody else, all other 31 teams, to see the Chiefs win it last year because, you said, they went the opposite way. Dylan, any lasting question you may have before we head to break and talk some Royals baseball with Max Reaper? All good? On the net, well, Lance, we appreciate your time as always. It had been too long. Wanted to get your thoughts on what the Chiefs were doing today and moving forward. We will definitely have you back on sometime before the draft. I mean, probably earlier than that as we continue to talk some Chiefs offseason stuff, but stuff but thank you as always as always thank you so much jack man i love you guys to death man you're i think you are the most underrated radio host in kansas city i will stick by that you're a good friend man i appreciate you dylan awesome work bro i I look forward to working with you in the future thank you guys so much i appreciate that lance kind words from lance twidwell of the spoken podcast always a great time here on the night shift on sports radio 810 whb we will take our final break of the third hour when we come back it's time to talk about the 14 and 2 Kansas City Royals and Cactus League play, and a little bit of the World Baseball Classic talk as the Team USA fell last night to Mexico 11-5. to They are actually underway right now against Team Canada, so we'll talk all of that with Max Reaper of Royals Review next on the Night Shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB. A blind man could have made that call. We like our beer flat as can be. We like our Back here on the night shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB. I am your host, Jack Johnson, alongside Dylan Michaels. Well, we put it off long enough. And then as if you li- if you've listened to my show before, you understand how much of a big baseball guy that I am. WBC is awesome. The Royals 14-2 Cactus League play is awesome right now. The United States of America is up six to nothing and the bottom of the first over Canada after a dismal showing last night against Mexico. They're 1-1 and in pool play, pool C that is, but seem to be well on their way to a win over Canada. And I can say that early on uh, in a 6 nothing lead in the first inning. Hopefully I don't jinx it. I'll knock on wood just in case. But Lance Lynn, 2Ks in the first inning. Maybe we'll see Bobby Witt Jr. tonight. He did have a hit and an RBI double last night in the blowout against Mexico. But as for a guy like Brady Singer... It wasn't so good. So let's go to the phone lines. We'll talk with Max Reaper of Royals Review, 
who is a good friend of the show. Max, let's start it with Brady Singer. I'm sure you watched the game last night or at least got highlights of the game. What can we chalk up Brady Singer's outing for Team U.S. last night? Was it nerves? Was it same mistakes as last year that we saw with Kansas City? Because I saw a lot of people overreacting just a little bit to how bad looked or bad Brady Singer looked against Mexico. Yeah, you have to wonder if it was a little bit of nerves. I mean, just the moment was, was pretty big. I mean, look, this is a guy that in his entire career has not played a lot of meaningful baseball, unfortunately, and he gets to put on a big stage here, gets to represent Team USA. Uh, you know, a guy that certainly, you know, in college he had some big moments pitching for Florida in the College World Series, but, you know, this is kind of a different different stage. And, yeah, I think the moment was a little too big for him. I, I did know, know that he didn't throw any change-ups uh, in his outing. Uh, you know, I know that's something that he had been working on and had some success in his outings with the Royals early in spring. Um, so I was a little surprised he didn't kind of unleash a couple of those. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I wouldn't make too much of it. It's just, you know, a couple of innings uh, against in a tournament where, you know, we've, we've seen a lot of kind of crazy things happen. You know, there's a lot of uneven talent. You know, you've got uh, some of the best players in the world, and then you've got electricians from the Czech Republic, you know, striking out Shohei Otani. So it's been a really interesting tournament, uh, and it's been a lot of fun. I mean, a lot of energy to a lot of these games, and it's, it's been fun to see some of these players uh, play with a lot of enthusiasm for their home countries. Uh, so, so, you know, hopefully Brady can, can, can kind of settle down. Uh, I know he was excited to kind of learn from some of the older older players, and I think, you know, if anything, the experience will be valuable for that to, you know, sit next to Adam Wainwright and get to learn from a guy that's been in the league for 20 years, you know, how to conduct yourself on, on a big in big moments like that. So I'm sure it will bounce back. Maybe a little disappointing for him to, to you know, his first uh, outing to not pitch well, but uh, hopefully I'll have another opportunity here in the next couple games uh, to, to kind of rectify that. Well, Max, as we were talking, the U.S. just put up three more runs in the first, a Mike Trout <laughs> three-run home run. It's now 9 nothing over Team Canada. Speaking of the WBC, we've seen Japan go undefeated in pool play. The DR was upended early on. Uh, Venezuela's been hot. Salvador Perez had four hits yesterday. But one of the guys I can't take my eyes off right now on the WBC is MJ Melendez and playing on one of the most fun teams in the WBC in Puerto Rico. I don't know if you had a chance to catch the game last night. That might have been one of the loudest baseball environments I had seen in probably the last five or six years. But how cool is it that MJ Melendez kind of gets to be in the heart of that for this type of experience? Oh, yeah. I think for some of these younger guys, it's, it's, it's a tremendous experience to be one number one around some of these veteran players who are all-stars and have you know done some great things. They can learn from some of those guys, but also to kind of show that they belong in this league. And, and, and you know, MJ Melendez had a nice rookie season, uh, but to do this for, you know, in front of some of the guys on, you know, on that roster and, and on this big stage, and it's got to be a huge confidence booster to show, hey, I belong. I'm, I'm, a, I'm one of the best baseball players in the world. And, and, you know, yeah, he had a terrific hit last night. And, and you're right about the, 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 the crowd. And uh, that's what's been so, I think, so fun to watch about with the uh, World Baseball Classic is just, like, these crowds have been so into it. I mean, I don't know if you saw some of the games from, like, uh, from, from in Asia where the, you know, the crowd is going nuts and, and they have all their chants and, the, and the, uh, the, 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 uh, the songs and dances. And, you know, you kinda, I don't know if I want that for every game and, 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 you know, every Royals game on a Tuesday evening against the White Sox, but, Every once in a while, for like the postseason, that'd be great if we had that kind of atmosphere in, in uh, the major leagues. So it's been a lot of fun. And I'm glad to see some of these Royals have success, not just MJ Melendez, but Nicky Lopez playing really well 
for Team Italy. Uh, and hopefully, well, I think we'll see Bobby Witt Jr. get a little more playing time. I know there's some some uh, fans and I think uh, some commentators that are saying, hey, you know what, we need to use his speed in the lineup and maybe get, uh, you know, give a little spark to Team America. So maybe in the next game we'll see him get a start. So uh, it's been great to see the Royals going to get their moment. Of course, Salvi, uh, you know, with his big performance last night, uh, and we know what he could do. But uh, for, for some of these younger guys, I think it's been really encouraging to see them play so well on such a big stage. We're talking with Max Reaper of Royals. We're going over some of the World Baseball Classic right now. Team U.S. up 9 to nothing after one inning with Team Canada. But let's jump over to the boys in blue who play tomorrow night in a split squad against the Seattle Mariners and then the Cincinnati Reds. 3-10 first pitch in their game against Seattle. 8-0-5 against the Reds. But Kansas City is 14-2 and and lead in a hell of a lot of the categories in spring training. I asked this to Joel Penfield of KC Sports Network last week. I know it's spring training. I know most of these stats do not mean anything. I remember back when Chris Owings led the Royals in average home runs, doubles, and, and RBIs in spring training, and then was one of the worst offensive players the Royals had ever inked in that era from 2018 to 2023. But is there anything, and I mean anything, you can take away from a start like this? Because it's one thing to be good in spring training. Right now, the Royals feel unbeatable at 14-2. and What can you make of this for the start for the boys in blue and Cactus League play? Well, I think, you know, look, it's better. I don't, I'm still in kind of camp. Spring training doesn't really mean that much. But, you know, you, you'd, you'd rather them play well, right? If they were 2-14, and 14, yeah. you, know, you know, I don't think we'd feel really great about things. So, it's good that they're playing well. I think it, it, I think there's a couple things. Like, when you have young players, I think it does matter a little bit to play well. Like, they, they need that confidence boost. I think there's, you know, some of them have had some major league experience. Some of them haven't. But, you know, you want to feel like you belong in the majors. And you want, you know, you want to do your best against some of these experienced major leaguers. And I know the, the opposition can be a little uneven. Sometimes you're facing, uh, you know, top pitchers. Sometimes you're facing a guy that was in double-A last year. But to do well in a major league uniform, I think, says something. So I will say that there could be some value in that, especially with a younger team. So it's good that they're playing well. Yeah, I will note that they they won the Cactus League, I guess, a couple times in the past six years. One time was in 2015 when they went on to win the World Series. I don't think that's going to happen this year. The other time was in 2021, which ended up being a bad year. But that's the year they started off 16 and nine in April, only to kind of fade, you know, quickly quickly collapse. Uh, but you know, there could be something to them playing well in spring training and then getting off to a good start. Now they'll have to sustain that. But you know, if this team can kind of carry that over a little bit, at least kind of bring that confidence of like, hey, we've been hitting well. You know, maybe that can carry over a little bit. Uh, I know the hitting conditions are going to be different. You know, they're going to go from 90-degree weather in Arizona to probably like 45 degrees on opening day against the Twins. Uh, you know, it's, it's different to go from playing five innings and then the, the reserves come in versus, you know, playing nine innings uh, once the season starts. Uh, you, know, you know, and of course the opposition is different, but if you can kind of get in that groove, and, and, and confidence does mean something, I think, in baseball, I think that can help them at least get off to a good start. Because how many times have we seen a Royals team just, you know, the season's over by the second week? You know, it'd be nice for a young team to at least tread water in April and not get totally buried to have the season over by the end of the first month. I think that would be a positive thing for a young team like this. Can we look around the infield right now and pretty much lock in all those spots? And I think I go Salvador Perez behind the plate. I go Vinny Pasquantino at first. I think I'll go Michael Massey over Nicky Lopez despite his performance in the WBC at second base. Bobby Wood Jr., of course, at shortstop. 
And then it doesn't seem like there's any indication the Royals are moving on from Hunter Dozier. So is it pretty much a lock that that's what the infield should look like for Kansas City on opening day against Minnesota? With the caveat, I'll say that's it's fair. That, that's probably the starting lineup. But I'll put the caveat that Nick Prado is is really you know I think he's showing a lot in spring training, and he may be playing his way into a, a starting role on opening day. And I, I still think you know the, the odds are kind of working against him right now. That you know he has an option year. I think they want to see Vinny at first base. I think there's a little bit of a log jam. You know they want to keep that DH spot open for when Salvi has to DH. So you know Vinny. Is probably got to play a lot of first base, uh, but the fact that they had Nick Prado playing right field this week, you know, that's kind of interesting. That that gives him some flexibility. It's like he plays first base most of the time when Salvi DHs, then he moves to first. Nick Prado maybe moves to right field. That's something that could work, I think, uh, when all those guys are up. So you know, he, he looked pretty good. I think he's got a good eye at the plate. He's going to strike out uh, quite a bit, but if he can draw walks, play good defense, have. 15 to 20 home runs and good gap power. I think the Royals would take that in a heartbeat. Uh, and he, you know, I know he didn't set the world on fire in his uh, limited opportunities last year, but you know, he's a guy that's kind of proven what he can do with the minors. I don't know if there's a whole lot of seasoning left for him to do. Uh, so it wouldn't surprise me if if he continues to play well in the spring that they say, well, let's let's see what you can do. Let's let's give you a chance to play first base on a regular basis, and uh, and and we'll take that defense because I think he could, could be a Gold Glover you know caliber uh glove at first base and and let's go with uh you know let's go go with a defensive upgrade and see what you can do offensively so it wouldn't surprise me if prado does kind of burst through that infield and and, and start uh, i think the rest of the positions you're, you're right dozier is going to play third we'll see how long that leash is i think the fact that uh you know nate Eaton's played well uh you know maybe he gets some he gets a little bit of playing time over there i think kind of the veterans matt duffy's played you know well i don't expect him to be more than a reserve player but and he gives you at least, I think, a defensive upgrade at third base. And I think Michael Massey, you know, he's a guy that I think had to have a strong spring to kind of secure that second base position, and he has. Uh, you know, Nicky Lopez, I'm sure, will get some playing time, but uh, but I think this is not, it's Michael Massey's kind of job to lose at this point. And right so far, you know, I think he's, he's kind of seized it. So I think that is probably your starting lineup, but but uh, don't be surprised if maybe Nick Prado uh, you know, busts through there. We're talking with Max Reaper of Royals Review in the 14-2 and Kansas City Royals and Cactus League play. One of the guys in the bullpen that I feel like has not gotten enough talk in spring training because of the way he was really mishandled for the better part of two to three years. But how about Richard Lovelady? I'm starting to think that he's more so of a lock than anything, and that was after the Royals acquired a guy like Josh Taylor for Adalberto Mondesi. Maybe now it's Richard Lovelady being one of the main lefties in that bullpen, and I think with the stuff that he still has, Maybe the best move that is for the Royals, instead of having a guy like Josh Taylor, maybe have Richard Lovelady to pair alongside Aroldis Chapman and uh, Amir Garrett. Yeah, I've been on the Richard Lovelady train for a couple years now, and, and you know it's it's tough that he's had setbacks to his career due to injuries. Uh, but but yeah, hopefully this is his time to shine. And look, both him and Taylor are coming off injuries, uh, and so you know. It, it kind of comes down to who who shows he's the healthiest right now, and and he's looked good so far. So I think, uh, and he's a little bit older, you know, not maybe doesn't not as accomplished as Taylor. Taylor had you know I think one good season with Boston, showed he could kind of perform over a whole season. But but Lovely is a guy that's put up, you know, he's pretty much done all he can do in the minors. Really, all he has to do now is just show he's healthy and and make that jump to the big leagues. And so, so I, I'd love to see him get that kind of opportunity. I'm curious to see how many lefties they do carry, and we I mean, know that. Lefty specialists are not, you know, not really a, uh, uh, you know, they've been diminished quite a bit with the new rule that, you know, you have to face three hitters, and they do already have 
Garrett and Chapman, who aren't really lefty specialists, although Garrett, Garrett pretty, is pretty tough against lefties. Um, so, and left lefty's not necessarily a specialist, uh, so maybe there's a role for him there regardless. But it is kind of a lefty-heavy bullpen, so I wonder you know, what they'll do with that kind of logjam. It's a nice problem to have. Maybe there's some surplus there. Uh, that they feel comfortable making a trade. You know, maybe Amir Garrett is being kind of offered to teams as like a veteran lefty that uh, another team could use. Uh, so we'll see. Uh, but, I, you know, I'd really like to see Lovelady get a shot. Uh, I think over a full season he could be a pretty solid performer. And uh, it'd be nice to see him get his career back on track. Last couple questions for you, Max, and we're talking with Max Reaper of Royals Review. On, to- on the topic of the bullpen here, of course, the lefty specialist, you know, Ryan Yarbrough is more of a long reliever guy, but he's a lefty, Love Lady, a lefty, Amir Garrett, a lefty, Roldis Chapman, a lefty. But I want to look more so at a guy like Dylan Coleman, who it was, you know, rumored out of camp that he's toying a little bit with a curveball. We've heard Brad Keller toying with an extra pitch as well, another curveball as well. How much of an influence is this p- this pitching staff having, speaking of the coaching staff, with guys like Zach Bove, uh, of course, and, and you know across the board when you're working with a uh, bench coach like Paul Hoover, uh, who is great with the Tampa Bay Rays catching group, you know how much influence can they really have in year one, and how much do you expect this to work? You know, having an extra pitch, they're seemingly trying to throw it a lot in spring training. Brad Keller working with his curveball, Dylan Coleman working with his curveball. You know, can this be really successful in year one, or is this a process that takes longer than just one season? Well, yeah, and then you can join add with that to that. Chris Bubich, I think he's been working on a slider. Yeah. I think Josh Stalmont is working on a, a sinker, a splitter. Uh, so, yeah, there's there's a lot of guys working on new pitches, which is great. I mean, that's, this is the time of the year to do it. Not all these guys are going to be able to throw these new pitches. They're, they're, some some of them may discard it immediately. I mean, I know Chris Bubich was working on a slider last spring. They kind of hyped it up, and he just never really, never really materialized. But, you know, it only takes, you know, and learning a new pitch, that can change your career. I mean, Think about Mariano Rivera until he learned the cutter. You know, like he was not—he was just a, a mediocre starter. And then he figures out the cutter, and boom, he's in Cooperstown. Uh, it can change careers, and you know, we'll see how many of these guys are able to throw a new pitch, you know, on a regular basis with effectiveness. But that's why you bring in this new coaching staff to see what they can do and, and see because these pitchers have talent. I mean, I think everyone knows that. I mean, they, a lot of these guys have a really good pedigree and pretty good track record in the minors. It's just, you know, for some of them, it's been a matter of consistency, a matter of not being able to find the strike zone, uh, and, and, and a matter of not being prepared for games. I mean, if you look at their first inning record last year, I mean, it was pretty, it was pretty damning for uh, Cal Eldred. So uh, I, I think we can see an, an impact pretty quickly. Um, I, you know, I know it takes a while maybe to learn a new pitch, get a feel for it, but um, once you kind of fi- find that groove, it shouldn't take very long to start seeing results. And the Royals are kind of – kind of stake their claim on that right they've they've said we have talented pitchers we know that we have the data and last year was just a matter of not getting that data to the pitchers and not being able to execute a game plan and we think we have the coaching staff to do that now well if that's the case then we should be able to get results pretty quickly so i'm i'm kind of eager to see what these guys do and we you know we talked about spring training uh and and you know maybe the results don't matter that much but the fact that they're throwing strikes and they're getting uh, strikeouts and not really walking that many guys. I think that matters a little bit because that's something that can carry over to the big leagues. And I, I know it's you know it's different facing Aaron Judge than maybe some random double A hitter, but um, you know the, the the fact that they're throwing strikes I think is a, is an encouraging result, especially with what they've been working on, what they've been stressing with the coaching staff this off season. So I'm I'm really encouraged. I'm really curious to see what these pitches look like in game action when the regular season starts, but. 
um, I think there's reason to be hopeful if you're a Royals fan that this pitching staff can at least improve a little bit. Well, Max, thanks so much for your time. As always, sorry to cut you a little bit short, but we'll talk to you next time. At any time, Jack. I appreciate it. There he goes. That's Max Reaper of Royals Review. And the only last question I was going to ask him was just on the topic of Brad Keller. I'm hoping I'm not getting my hopes up too high for a guy like Brad Keller who looks slimmer, his stuff looks sharp, seen him pitch a couple of times on TV, and from all reports out of camp, he has really been performing well. Of course, as Max pointed out, Chris Bubich toying with the slider, Daniel Lynch with another curveball, you know, Josh Stommel worth an extra pitch, Dylan Coleman with his curveball. Now, this really can be something that can overhaul this pitching staff. This coaching staff really can go a long ways in just year one. Hopefully, it means a lot to this team. Hopefully, these results can show as early as April because we've seen time and time and again the Royals struggling out of the gates, and it pretty much buries them before the weather even gets warm. And I think for everybody in Kansas City, with the new regime in here, you have J.J. Piccolo now, the new era in Kansas City. Instead of Dayton Moore, you're hoping that things can start a hell of a lot better than they have in the last couple of seasons. That'll wrap up another edition of the Night Shift on Sports Radio 810. WHB, big thank you to all of our guests tonight, starting with Patrick Fitzgerald of ESPN, Joel Penfield of KC Sports Network, Lance Twidwell of the Spoken Podcast, and Max Reaper of Royals Review. We thank you for being more flexible, adjusting to our show tonight, as we usually have on Wednesdays, but this will be the only time we're on air this week. So we appreciate you listening, but we will be back next week on Wednesday, regular scheduling from 7 to 10. So you enjoy the weekend, you enjoy the NCAA tournament, and we'll talk to you next time, Kansas City. Same time, you don't have to go home, but you can.